1: chapter 3 part 2 of this side of paradise this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina this side of paradise by f scott fitzgerald book 1 chapter 3 part 2 the devil Healy's they left at twelve and taxied to Bistolary's. There were Axia Marlow and Phoebe Collum, from the Summer Garden Show, Fred Sloane and Amory. The evening was so very young that they felt ridiculous with surplus energy, and burst into the café like Dionysian revellers. "'Table for four in the middle of the floor!' yelled Phoebe. "'Hurry, old dear, tell em we're here!' "'Tell em to play admiration!' shouted Sloane. You two order. Phoebe and I are going to shake a wicked calf!" And they sailed off in the muddled crowd. Axia and Amory, acquaintances of an hour, jostled behind a waiter to a table at a point of vantage. There they took seats and watched. "'There's Findle Margotson from New Haven!' she cried above the uproar. "'Lo, Findle! Hoo-wee!' "'Oh, Axia!' he shouted in salutation. "'Come on over to our table!' No," Amory whispered. "Can't do it, Findle. I'm with somebody else. Call me up tomorrow about one o'clock." Findle, a nondescript man about Bisties, answered incoherently and turned back to the brilliant blonde whom he was endeavouring to steer around the room. "There's a natural damn fool," commented Amory. "Oh, he's all right. Here's the old jitney waiter. If you ask me, I want a double daiquiri." MAKE IT four. The crowd whirled and changed and shifted. They were mostly from the colleges, with a scattering of the male refuse of Broadway, and women of two types, the higher of which was the chorus-girl. On the whole it was a typical crowd, and their party as typical as any. About three-fourths of the whole business was for effect, and therefore harmless, ended at the door of the café, soon enough for the five o'clock train back to Yale or Princeton. About one-fourth continued on to the dimmer hours, and gathered strange dust from strange places. Their party was scheduled to be one of the harmless kind. Fred Sloane and Phoebe Collum were old friends, Axie and Amory new ones. But strange things are prepared even in the dead of night, and the unusual, which lurks least in the café, home of the prosaic and inevitable, was preparing to spoil for him the waning romance of Broadway. The way it took was so inexpressibly terrible, so unbelievable, that afterward he never thought of it as experience, but it was a scene from a misty tragedy, played far behind the veil, and that it meant something definite, he knew. About one o'clock they moved to Maxim's, and two found them in de Viniers. Sloane had been drinking consecutively and was in a state of unsteady exhilaration, but Amory was quite tiresomely sober. They had run across none of those ancient, corrupt buyers of champagne who usually assisted their New York parties. They were just through dancing and were making their way back to their chairs when Amory became aware that someone at a nearby table was looking at him. He turned and glanced casually. A middle-aged man dressed in a brown sack-suit, it was, sitting a little apart at a table by himself and watching their party intently. At Amory's glance he smiled faintly. Amory turned to Fred, who was just sitting down. "'Who's that pale fool watching us?' he complained indignantly. "'Where?' cried Sloane. "'We'll have him thrown out!' He rose to his feet and swayed back and forth, clinging to his chair. "'Where is he?' Axia and Phoebe suddenly leaned and whispered to each other across the table, and before Amory realized it they found themselves on their way to the floor. "'Where now?' up to the flat suggested Phoebe we've got brandy and fizz and everything's slow down here tonight Amory considered quickly he hadn't been drinking and decided that if he took no more it would be reasonably discreet for him to trot along in the party in fact it would be perhaps the thing to do in order to keep an eye on Sloane, who was not in a state to do his own thinking so he took Axia's arm and, piling intimately into a taxicab, they drove out over the hundreds and drew up at a tall, white stone apartment house. Never would he forget that street. It was a broad street, lined on both sides with just such tall, white stone buildings, dotted with dark windows. They stretched along as far as the eye could see, flooded with a bright moonlight that gave them a calcium pallor. He imagined each one to have an elevator and a coloured hall-boy and a key-rack, each one to be eight storeys high and full of three- and four-room suites. He was rather glad to walk into the cheeriness of Phoebe's living-room and sink onto a sofa while the girls went rummaging for food. "'Phoebe's great stuff!' confided Sloane, sotto voce. "'I'm only going to stay half an hour,' Amory said sternly. He wondered if it sounded priggish. "'Hell, you say!' protested Sloane. "'We're here now. Don't let's rush.' "'I don't like this place,' Amory said sulkily. "'And I don't want any food.' Phoebe reappeared with sandwiches, brandy-bottle, siphon, and four glasses. "'Amory, pour em out,' she said. "'And we'll drink to Fred Sloane, who has a rare, distinguished edge.' "'Yes,' said Axia, coming in. "'And Amory. I like Amory.' She sat down beside him and laid her yellow head on his shoulder. "'I'll pour,' said Sloane. "'You use siphon, Phoebe.' They filled the tray with glasses. "'Ready? Here she goes.' Amory hesitated, glass in hand. There was a minute while temptation crept over him like a warm wind, and his imagination turned to fire. And he took the glass from phoebe's hand that was all for at the second that his decision came he looked up and saw ten yards from him the man who had been in the cafe and with his jump of astonishment the glass fell from his uplifted hand there the man half sat half leaned against a pile of pillows on the corner divan his face was cast in the same yellow wax as in the cafe neither the dull pasty color of a dead man rather a sort of virile pallor, nor unhealthy, you'd have called it, but like a strong man who'd worked in a mine or done night-shifts in a damp climate. Amory looked him over carefully, and later he could have drawn him, after a fashion, down to the merest details. His mouth was the kind that is called Frank, and he had steady grey eyes that moved slowly from one to the other of their group, with just the shade of a questioning expression amory noticed his hands they weren't fine at all but they had versatility and a tenuous strength they were nervous hands that sat lightly along the cushions and moved constantly with little jerky openings and closings then suddenly amory perceived the feet and with a rush of blood to the head he realized he was afraid the feet were all wrong with a sort of wrongness that he felt rather than knew It was like weakness in a good woman, or blood on satin, one of those terrible incongruities that shake little things in the back of the brain. He wore no shoes, but instead a sort of half-moccasin, pointed, though, like the shoes they wore in the fourteenth century, and with the little ends curling up. They were a darkish brown, and his toes seemed to fill them to the end. They were unutterably terrible. He must have said something or look something, for Axia's voice came out of the void with a strange goodness. Well, look at Amory! Poor old Amory's sick! Old head going round! Look at that man! cried Amory, pointing toward the corner divan. You mean that purple zebra? shrieked Axia facetiously. hoo Amory's got a purple zebra watching him! Sloane laughed vacantly. Old oh, zebra gotcha, Amory! there was a silence. The man regarded Amory quizzically. Then the human voices fell faintly on his ear. "'Thought you weren't drinking,' remarked Axia sardonically, but her voice was good to hear. The whole divan that held the man was alive, alive like heat-waves over asphalt, like wriggling worms. "'Come back! Come back!' Axia's arm fell on his. "'Amory, dear, you aren't going, Amory!' He was halfway to the door. "'Come on, Amory, stick with us.' "'Sick, are you? Sit down a second. Take some water. Take a little brandy.' The elevator was close, and the colored boy was half-asleep, paled to a livid bronze. Axe's beseeching voice floated down the shaft. "'Those feet! Those feet!' As they settled to the lower floor the feet came into view in the sickly electric light of the paved hall. IN THE ALLEY Down the long street came the moon, and Amory turned his back on it and walked. Ten, fifteen steps away, sounded the footsteps. They were like a slow dripping, with just the slightest insistence in their fall. Amory's shadow lay, perhaps, ten feet ahead of him and soft shoes were presumably that far behind. With the instinct of a child Amory edged in under the blue darkness of the white buildings, cleaving the moonlight for haggard seconds, once bursting into a slow run with clumsy stumblings. After that he stopped suddenly. He must keep hold, he thought. His lips were dry, and he licked them. If he met anyone good— were there any good people left in the world or did they all live in white apartment houses now? Was everyone followed in the moonlight? But if he met someone good who'd know what he meant and hear this damned scuffle... Then the scuffling grew suddenly nearer and a black cloud settled over the moon. When again the pale sheen skimmed the cornices, it was almost beside him and Amory thought he heard a quiet breathing. Suddenly he realized that the footsteps were not behind, had never been behind. They were ahead, and he was not eluding, but following, following. He began to run, blindly, his heart knocking heavily, his hands clenched, far ahead a black dot showed itself, resolved slowly into a human shape. But Amory was beyond that now. He turned off the street and darted into an alley, narrow and dark, and smelling of old rottenness. He twisted down a long, sinuous blackness, where the moonlight was shut away, except for tiny glints and patches, then suddenly sank panting into a corner by a fence, exhausted. The steps ahead stopped, and he could hear them shift slightly with a continuous motion, like waves around a dock. He put his face in his hands and covered eyes and ears as well as he could. During all this time it never occurred to him that he was delirious or drunk, he had a sense of reality such as material things could never give him. His intellectual contents seemed to submit passively to it. And it fitted like a glove everything that had ever preceded it in his life. It did not muddle him. It was like a problem whose answer he knew on paper, yet whose solution he was unable to grasp. He was far beyond horror. He had sunk through the thin surface of that, now moved in a region where the feet, and the fear of white walls were real, living things, things he must accept. Only far inside his soul a little fire leaped and cried that something was pulling him down, trying to get him inside a door and slam it behind him. After that door was slammed there would be only footfalls and white buildings in the moonlight, and perhaps he would be one of the footfalls. During the five or ten minutes he waited in the shadow of the fence there was somehow this fire, That was as near as he could name it afterward he remembered calling aloud i want someone stupid oh send someone stupid this to the black fence opposite him in whose shadows the footsteps shuffled shuffled he supposed stupid and good had become somehow intermingled through previous association when he called thus it was not an act of will at all will had turned him away from the moving figure in the street It was almost instinct that called, just the pile on pile of inherent tradition, or some wild prayer from way over the night. Then something clanged like a low gong struck at a distance, and before his eyes a face flashed over the two feet, a face pale and distorted with a sort of infinite evil that twisted it like flame in the wind. But he knew, for the half-second that the gong tanged and hummed, that it was the face of Dick Humberd minutes later he sprang to his feet realizing dimly that there was no more sound and that he was alone in the graying alley it was cold and he started on a steady run for the light that showed the street at the other end at the window it was late morning when he woke and found the telephone beside his bed in the hotel tolling frantically and remembered that he had left word to be called at eleven Sloane was snoring heavily, his clothes in a pile by his bed. They dressed and ate breakfast in silence, and then sauntered out to get some air. Amory's mind was working slowly, trying to assimilate what had happened, and separate from the chaotic imagery that stacked his memory the bare shreds of truth. If the morning had been cold and grey he would have grasped the reins of the past in an instant, But it was one of those days that New York gets sometimes in May, when the air on Fifth Avenue was a soft, light wine. How much, or how little, Sloane remembered, Amory did not care to know. He apparently had none of the nervous tension that was gripping Amory, and forcing his mind back and forth like a shrieking saw. Then Broadway broke upon them, and with the babble of noise and the painted faces a sudden sickness rushed over Amory. "'For God's sake, let's go back! Let's get off of this—this place!' Sloane looked at him in amazement. "'What do you mean?' "'This street! It's ghastly! Come on, let's get back to the avenue!' "'Do you mean to say,' said Sloane stolidly, "'that cause you had some sort of indigestion that made you act like a maniac last night, you're never coming on Broadway again?' Simultaneously Amory clasped him with the crowd, and he seemed no longer Sloane of the debonair humour and the happy personality, but only one of the evil faces that whirled along the turbid stream.
0: "'Man!'
1: he shouted so loud that the people on the corner turned and followed them with their eyes. "'It's filthy, and if you can't see it, you're filthy too!' "'I can't help it,' said Sloane doggedly. "'What's the matter with you? Old remorse getting you?' YOU'D BE IN A FINE STATE IF YOU'D GONE THROUGH WITH OUR LITTLE PARTY." "'I'M GOING, FRED,' said Amory slowly. His knees were shaking under him, and he knew that if he stayed another minute on the street he would kneel over where he stood. I'll be at the Vanderbilt for lunch." And he strode rapidly off and turned over to Fifth Avenue. Back at the hotel he felt better, but as he walked into the barber-shop, intending to get a head massage, The smell of the powders and tonics brought back Axia's sidelong, suggestive smile, and he left hurriedly. In the doorway of his room a sudden blackness flowed around him like a divided river. When he came to himself he knew that several hours had passed. He pitched onto the bed and rolled over on his face with a deadly fear that he was going mad. He wanted people, people, someone sane and stupid and good. He lay for he knew not how long without moving. He could feel the little hot veins on his forehead standing out, and his terror had hardened on him like plaster. He felt he was passing up again through the thin crust of horror, and now only could he distinguish the shadowy twilight he was leaving. He must have fallen asleep again, for when he had next recollected himself he had paid the hotel bill and was stepping into a taxi at the door. It was raining torrents. On the train for Princeton he saw no one he knew, only a crowd of fagged-looking Philadelphians. The presence of a painted woman across the aisle filled him with a fresh burst of sickness, and he changed to another car, Trying to concentrate on an article in a popular magazine. He found himself reading the same paragraphs over and over. So he abandoned this attempt, and, leaning over wearily, pressed his hot forehead against the damp window-pane. The car, a smoker, was hot and stuffy with most of the smells of the state's alien population. He opened a window and shivered against the cloud of fog that drifted in over him. The two hours' ride were like days, and he nearly cried aloud with joy when the towers of Princeton loomed up beside him, and the yellow squares of light filtered through the blue rain. Tom was standing in the centre of the room, pensively relighting a cigar-stub. Amory fancied he looked rather relieved on seeing him. "'Had a hell of a dream about you last night,' came in the cracked voice through the cigar smoke. "'I had an idea you were in some trouble.' "'Don't tell me about it!' Amory almost shrieked. "'Don't say a word. I'm tired and pepped out!' Tom looked at him queerly, and then sank into a chair and opened his Italian notebook. Amory threw his coat and hat on the floor, loosened his collar, and took a Wells novel at random from the shelf. "'Wells is sane,' he thought, and if you won't do I'll read Rupert Brooke.' Half an hour passed. Outside the wind came up, and Amory started as the wet branches moved and clawed with their fingernails at the window-pane. Tom was deep in his work, and inside the room only the occasional scratch of a match, or the rustle of leather as they shifted in their chairs broke the stillness. Then, like a zigzag of lightning, came the change. Amory sat bolt upright, frozen cold in his chair. Tom was looking at him with his mouth drooping, eyes fixed. "'God help us!' Amory cried. "'Oh, my heavens!' shouted Tom. "'Look behind!' Quick as a flash Amory whirled around. He saw nothing but the dark windowpane. "'It's gone now,' came Tom's voice, after a second in a still terror. "'Something was looking at you!' Trembling violently, Amory dropped into his chair again. "'I've got to tell you,' he said. "'I've had one hell of an experience. I think I've—I've seen the devil or—something like him. What face did you just see? Or no,' he added quickly, "'don't tell me!' And he gave Tom the story. It was midnight when he finished, and after that, with all lights burning, two sleepy, shivering boys read to each other from The New Machiavelli, until dawn came up out of Witherspoon Hall, and the Princetonian fell against the door, and the May birds hailed the sun on last night's rain. End of chapter book 1 chapter 4 of this side of paradise this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina this side of paradise by f scott fitzgerald book 1 chapter 4 narcissus off duty During Princeton's transition period, that is, during Amory's last two years there, while he saw it change and broaden and live up to its Gothic beauty by a better means than night parades, certain individuals arrived who stirred it to its plethoric heights. Some of them had been freshmen, and wild freshmen, with Amory, some were in the class below, and it was in the beginning of his last year and around small tables at the Nassau Inn that they began questioning aloud the institutions that Amory and countless others before him had questioned so long in secret. First, and partly by accident, they struck on certain books, a definite type of biographical novel that Amory christened quest-books. In the quest-book the hero set off in life armed with the best weapons, and avowedly intending to use them as such weapons are usually used, to push their possessors ahead as selfishly and blindly as possible but the heroes of the quest-books discovered that there might be a more magnificent use for them. None Other Gods, Sinister Street, and The Research Magnificent were examples of such books. It was the latter of these three that gripped Burn Holliday, and made him wonder in the beginning of senior year how much it was worth while being a diplomatic autocrat around his club on Prospect Avenue, and basking in the highlights of class office. It was distinctly through the channels of aristocracy that Byrne found his way. Amory, through Carey, had had a vague drifting acquaintance with him, but not until January of senior year did their friendship commence. "'Heard the latest?' said Tom, coming in late one drizzly evening with that triumphant air he always wore after a successful conversational bout. "'No. Somebody flunked out? Or another ship sunk?' "'Worse than that!' ABOUT ONE-THIRD OF THE JUNIOR CLASS ARE GOING TO RESIGN FROM THEIR CLUBS. WHAT? ACTUAL FACT? WHY? SPIRIT OF REFORM AND ALL THAT. BURN HOLIDAY IS BEHIND IT. THE CLUB PRESIDENTS ARE HOLDING A MEETING TONIGHT TO SEE IF THEY CAN FIND A JOINT MEANS OF COMBATING IT. Well, WHAT'S THE IDEA OF THE THING? OH, CLUBS INJURIOUS TO PRINCETON DEMOCRACY COST A LOT, DRAW SOCIAL LINES take time. The regular line you get sometimes from disappointed sophomores. Woodrow thought they should be abolished, and all that." "'But this is the real thing?' "'Absolutely. I think it'll go through.' "'For Pete's sake, tell me more about it.' "'Well,' began Tom, "'it seems that the idea developed simultaneously in several heads. I was talking to Byrne a while ago, and he claims that it's a logical result if an intelligent person thinks long enough about the social system. They had a discussion crowd, and the point of abolishing the clubs was brought up by someone. Everybody there leaped at it. It had been in each one's mind, more or less, and it just needed a spark to bring it out. Fine. I swear I think it'll be most entertaining. How did they feel up at cap-and-gown? Wild, of course." everyone's been sitting and arguing and swearing and getting mad and getting sentimental and getting brutal it's the same at all the clubs i've been the rounds they get one of the radicals in the corner and fire questions at him how do the radicals stand up oh moderately well burns a damn good talker and so obviously sincere that you can't get anywhere with him It's so evident that resigning from his club means so much more to him than preventing it does to us, that I felt futile when I argued, finally took a position that was brilliantly neutral. In fact, I believe Byrne thought for a while that he'd converted me.' "'And you say almost a third of the junior class are going to resign?' "'Call it a fourth and be safe.' "'Lord, who'd have thought it possible?' There was a brisk knock at the door, and Byrne himself came in. "'Hello, Amory. Hello, Tom.' Amory rose. "'Evening, Byrne. Don't mind if I seem to rush. I'm going to Renwick's.' Byrne turned to him quickly. "'You probably know what I want to talk to Tom about, and it isn't a bit private. I wish you'd stay.' "'I'd be glad to.' Amory sat down again, and as Byrne perched on a table and launched into argument with Tom— He looked at this revolutionary more carefully than he ever had before. Broad-browed and strong-chinned, with a fineness in the honest grey eyes that were like Carey's, Byrne was a man who gave an immediate impression of bigness and security. Stubborn, that was evident, but his stubbornness wore no stolidity, and when he had talked for five minutes, Amory knew that this keen enthusiasm had in it no quality of dilettantism. The intense power Amory felt later in Burn holiday differed from the admiration he had had for Humbert. This time it began as purely a mental interest. With other men, of whom he had thought as primarily first-class, he had been attracted first by their personalities, and in Byrne he missed that immediate magnetism to which he usually swore allegiance. But that night Amory was struck by Byrne's intense earnestness a quality he was accustomed to associate only with the dread stupidity, and by the great enthusiasm that struck dead chords in his heart. Burns stood vaguely for a land Amory hoped he was drifting toward, and it was almost time that land was in sight. Tom and Amory and Alec had reached an impasse. Never did they seem to have new experiences in common, for Tom and Alec had been as blindly busy with their committees and boards as Amory had been blindly idling and the things they had for dissection—college, contemporary personality, and the like—they had hashed and rehashed for many a frugal conversational meal. That night they discussed the clubs until twelve, and, in the main, they agreed with Byrne. To the roommates it did not seem such a vital subject as it had in the two years before, but the logic of Byrne's objections to the social system dovetailed so completely with everything they had thought that they questioned rather than argued, and envied the sanity that enabled this man to stand out so against all traditions. Then Amory branched off and found that Byrne was deep in other things as well. Economics had interested him, and he was turning socialist. Pacifism played in the back of his mind, and he read The Masses and Lyoff Tolstoy faithfully. "'How about religion?' Amory asked him. "'Don't know.' I'm in a muddle about a lot of things. I've just discovered that I've a mind, and I'm starting to read." "'Read what?' "'Everything. I have to pick and choose, of course, but mostly things to make me think. I'm reading the four Gospels now, and the varieties of religious experience.' "'What chiefly started you?' "'Wells, I guess, and Tolstoy, and a man named Edward Carpenter. I've been reading for over a year now on a few lines on what I consider the essential lines poetry well frankly not what you call poetry or for your reasons you two write of course and look at things differently whitman is the man that attracts me whitman yes he's a definite ethical force well i'm ashamed to say that i'm a blank on the subject of whitman how about you tom Tom nodded sheepishly. "'Well,' continued Burn, "'you may strike a few poems that are tiresome, but I mean the mass of his work. He's tremendous, like Tolstoy. They both look things in the face, and somehow, different as they are, stand for somewhat the same things.' "'You have me stumped, Byrne,' Amory admitted. I've read Anna Karenina and the Kreutzer Sonata, of course, but Tolstoy is mostly in the original Russian, as far as I'm concerned." "'He's the greatest man in hundreds of years!' cried Byrne enthusiastically. "'Did you ever see a picture of that shaggy old head of his?' They talked until three, from biology to organized religion, and when Amory crept shivering into bed it was with his mind aglow with ideas and a sense of shock that someone else had discovered the path he might have followed. Byrne Holiday was so evidently developing, and Amory had considered that he was doing the same. He had fallen into a deep cynicism over what had crossed his path, plotted the imperfectibility of man and Red Shaw and Chesterton enough to keep his mind from the edges of decadence. Now suddenly all his mental processes of the last year and a half seemed stale and futile a petty consummation of himself. And like a sombre background lay that incident of the spring before, that filled half his nights with a dreary terror and made him unable to pray. He was not even a Catholic. Yet that was the only ghost of a code that he had, the gaudy, ritualistic, paradoxical Catholicism whose prophet was Chesterton, whose claqueurs were such reformed rakes of literature as Hoismans and Bourget whose American sponsor was Ralph Adams Cram, with his adulation of thirteenth-century cathedrals, a Catholicism which Amory found convenient and ready-made, without priest or sacraments or sacrifice. He could not sleep, so he turned on his reading lamp and, taking down the Kreutzer Sonata, searched it carefully for the germs of Burne's enthusiasm. Being Burne was suddenly so much realer than being clever, yet he sighed. Here were other possible clay feet. He thought back through two years of Byrne as a hurried, nervous freshman, quite submerged in his brother's personality. Then he remembered an incident of sophomore year, in which Byrne had been suspected of the leading role. Dean Hollister had been heard by a large group, arguing with a taxi-driver, who had driven him from the junction. In the course of the altercation the Dean remarked that he might as well buy the taxicab. He paid and walked off, but next morning he entered his private office to find the taxicab itself in the space usually occupied by his desk, bearing a sign which read, PROPERTY OF DEAN Hollister, BOUGHT AND PAID FOR. It took two expert mechanics half a day to disassemble it into its minutest parts and remove it, which only goes to prove the rare energy of sophomore humor under efficient leadership. Then again, that very fall, Byrne had caused a sensation. A certain Phyllis Stiles, an intercollegiate prom-trotter, had failed to get her yearly invitation to the Harvard-Princeton game. Jesse Ferenby had brought her to a smaller game a few weeks before, and had pressed Byrne into service, to the ruination of the latter's misogyny. "'Are you coming to the Harvard game?' Byrne had asked indiscreetly, merely to make conversation. "'If you ask me!' cried Phyllis quickly. "'Of course I do,' said Byrne feebly. He was unversed in the arts of Phyllis, and was sure that this was merely a vapid form of kidding. Before an hour had passed he knew that he was indeed involved. Phyllis had pinned him down and served him up, informed him the train she was arriving by, and depressed him thoroughly." Aside from loathing Phyllis, he had particularly wanted to stag that game and entertain some Harvard friends. "'She'll see,' he informed a delegation who arrived in his room to josh him. "'This will be the last game she ever persuades any young innocent to take her to.' "'But, Burn, why did you invite her if you didn't want her?' Burn, you know you secretly mad about her. That's the real trouble.' "'What can you do, Byrne, what can you do against Phyllis?' But Byrne only shook his head and muttered threats which consisted largely of the phrase, "'She'll see, she'll see.' The blithesome Phyllis bore her twenty-five summers gaily from the train, but on the platform a ghastly sight met her eyes. There were Byrne and Fred Sloane arrayed to the last dot, like the lurid figures on college posters. They had bought flaring suits with huge peg-top trousers and gigantic padded shoulders. On their heads were rakish college hats, pinned up in front and sporting bright orange and black bands, while from their celluloid collars blossomed flaming orange ties. They wore black armbands with orange peas, and carried canes flying Princeton pennants, the effect completed by socks and peeping handkerchiefs in the same colour motifs. On a clanking chain they led a large, angry tomcat, painted to represent a tiger. A good half of the station crowd was already staring at them, torn between horrified pity and riotous mirth, and as Phyllis, with her svelte jaw dropping, approached, the pair bent over and emitted a college cheer in loud, far-carrying voices, thoughtfully adding the name Phyllis to the end. She was vociferously greeted and escorted enthusiastically across the campus, followed by half a hundred village urchins, to the stifled laughter of hundreds of alumni and visitors, half of whom had no idea that this was a practical joke, but thought that Byrne and Fred were two varsity sports showing their girl a collegiate time. Phyllis's feelings as she was paraded by the Harvard and Princeton stands, where sat dozens of her former devotees, can be imagined she tried to walk a little ahead she tried to walk a little behind but they stayed close that there should be no doubt whom she was with talking in loud voices of their friends on the football team until she could almost hear her acquaintances whispering phyllis Stiles must be awfully hard up to have come with those two that had been burn dynamically humorous fundamentally serious from that root had blossomed the energy that he was now trying to orient with progress so the weeks passed and march came and the clay feet that amory looked for failed to appear about a hundred juniors and seniors resigned from their clubs in a final fury of righteousness and the clubs in helplessness turned upon burn their finest weapon ridicule everyone who knew him liked him but what he stood for and he began to stand for more all the time, came under the lash of many tongues, until a frailer man than he would have been snowed under. "'Don't you mind losing prestige?' asked Amory one night. They had taken to exchanging calls several times a week. "'Of course I don't. What's prestige, at best?' "'Some people say that you're just a rather original politician,' he roared with laughter. THAT'S WHAT FRED SLOANE TOLD ME TODAY. I SUPPOSE I HAVE IT COMING. One afternoon they dipped into a subject that had interested Amory for a long time, the matter of the bearing of physical attributes on a man's makeup. up Byrne had gone into the biology of this, and then— OF COURSE HEALTH COUNTS. A HEALTHY MAN HAS TWICE THE CHANCE OF BEING GOOD, HE SAID. I DON'T AGREE WITH YOU. I DON'T BELIEVE IN MUSCULAR CHRISTIANITY. I do i believe christ had great physical vigor oh no amory protested he worked too hard for that i imagine that when he died he was a broken down man and the great saints haven't been strong half of them have well even granting that i don't think health has anything to do with goodness of course it's valuable to a great saint to be able to stand enormous strains But this fad of popular preachers rising on their toes in simulated virility, bellowing that calisthenics will save the world—no, Byrne, I can't go that. Well, let's waive it. We won't get anywhere, and besides, I haven't quite made up my mind about it myself. Now here's something I do know. Personal appearance has a lot to do with it. Coloring? Amory asked eagerly. Yes. That's what Tom and I figured, Amory agreed. We took the yearbooks for the last ten years and looked at the pictures of the senior council. I know you don't think much of that august body, but it does represent success here in a general way. Well, I suppose only about thirty-five percent of every class here are blondes, are really light, yet two-thirds of every senior council are light. We looked at pictures of ten years of them, mind you. That means that out of every fifteen light-haired men in the senior class, one is on the senior council, and of the dark-haired men it's only one in fifty. "'It's true,' Byrne agreed. "'The light-haired man is a higher type, generally speaking. I worked the thing out with the Presidents of the United States once, and found that way over half of them were light-haired. Yet think of the preponderant number of brunettes in the race.' "'People unconsciously admit it,' said Amory. "'You'll notice a blonde person is expected to talk. If a blonde girl doesn't talk we call her a doll. If a light-haired man is silent he's considered stupid. Yet the world is full of dark, silent men, and languorous brunettes, who haven't a brain in their heads, and somehow are never accused of the dearth. And the large mouth and broad chin and rather big nose undoubtedly make the superior face.' "'I'm not so sure.' Amory was all for classical features. "'Oh, yes, I'll show you.' And Byrne pulled out of his desk a photographic collection of heavily bearded, shaggy celebrities, Tolstoy, Whitman, Carpenter, and others. "'Aren't they wonderful!' Amory tried politely to appreciate them, and gave up laughingly. "'Byrne, I think they're the ugliest-looking crowd I ever came across. (laughs) They look like an old man's home.' Oh, Amory, look at that forehead on Emerson! Look at Tolstoy's eyes!" His tone was reproachful. Amory shook his head. No! Call them remarkable-looking, or anything you want. But ugly, they certainly are! Unabashed, Byrne ran his hand lovingly across the spacious foreheads, and piling up the pictures put them back in his desk. Walking at night was one of his favourite pursuits, and one night he persuaded Amory to accompany him. "'I hate the dark,' Amory objected. "'I didn't use to, except when I was particularly imaginative, but now I really do. I'm a regular fool about it.' "'That's useless, you know.' "'Quite possibly.' "'We'll go east,' Byrne suggested, "'and down that string of roads through the woods.' "'Doesn't sound very appealing to me,' admitted Amory, reluctantly. "'But let's go.' They set off at a good gait, and for an hour swung along in a brisk argument until the lights of Princeton were luminous white blots behind them. "'Any person with any imagination is bound to be afraid,' said Byrne earnestly. "'And this very walking at night is one of the things I was afraid about.' I'M GOING TO TELL YOU WHY I CAN WALK ANYWHERE NOW AND NOT BE AFRAID. GO ON, AMORY URGED eagerly. THEY WERE STRIDING TOWARD THE WOODS, BURN'S NERVOUS, ENTHUSIASTIC VOICE WARMING TO HIS SUBJECT. I USED TO COME OUT HERE ALONE AT NIGHT, OH, THREE MONTHS AGO, AND I ALWAYS STOPPED AT THAT CROSSROAD WE JUST PASSED. THERE WERE THE WOODS LOOMING UP AHEAD JUST AS THEY DO NOW. THERE WERE DOGS HOWLING, AND THE SHADOWS AND NO HUMAN SOUND of course i peopled the woods with everything ghastly just like you do don't you i do amory admitted well i began analyzing it my imagination persisted in sticking horrors into the dark so i stuck my imagination into the dark instead and let it look out at me i let it play stray dog or escaped convict or ghost and then saw myself coming along the road that made it all right as it always makes everything all right to project yourself completely into another's place. I knew that if I were the dog, or the convict, or the ghost, I wouldn't be a menace to burn Holliday any more than he was a menace to me. Then I thought of my watch. I'd better go back and leave it, and then essay the woods. No, I decided. It's better on the whole that I should lose a watch than that I should turn back. And I did go into them not only followed the road through them, but walked into them until I wasn't frightened any more. Did it until one night I sat down and dozed off in there. Then I knew I was through being afraid of the dark. Lordy! Amory breathed. I couldn't have done that. I'd have come out half and the first time an automobile passed and made the dark thicker when its lamps disappeared, I'd have come in. Well, Burns said suddenly, after a few moments' silence, "We're halfway through. Let's turn back." On the return, he launched into a discussion of will. "It's the whole thing," he asserted. "It's the one dividing line between good and evil. I've never met a man who led a rotten life and didn't have a weak will." How about great criminals? They're usually insane. If not, they're weak there is no such thing as a strong sane criminal burn i disagree with you altogether how about the superman well he's evil i think yet he's strong and sane i've never met him i'll bet though that he's stupid or insane i've met him over and over and he's neither that's why i think you're wrong i'm sure i'm not and so I don't believe in imprisonment except for the insane." On this point Amory could not agree. It seemed to him that life and history were rife with the strong criminal, keen but often self-deluding. In politics and business one found him, and among the old statesmen and kings and generals. But Byrne never agreed, and their courses began to split on that point. Byrne was drawing farther and farther away from the world about him. He resigned the vice-presidency of the senior class and took to reading and walking as almost his only pursuits. He voluntarily attended graduate lectures in philosophy and biology, and sat in all of them with a rather pathetically intent look in his eyes, as if waiting for something the lecturer would never quite come to. Sometimes Amory would see him squirm in his seat, and his face would light up. He was on fire to debate a point. He grew more abstracted on the street and was even accused of becoming a snob. But Amory knew it was nothing of the sort, and once when Byrne passed him four feet off, absolutely unseeingly, his mind a thousand miles away, Amory almost choked with the romantic joy of watching him. Byrne seemed to be climbing heights where others would be forever unable to get a foothold. "'I tell you,' Amory declared to Tom. HE'S THE FIRST CONTEMPORARY I'VE EVER MET WHOM I'LL ADMIT IS MY SUPERIOR IN MENTAL CAPACITY. IT'S A BAD TIME TO ADMIT IT. PEOPLE ARE BEGINNING TO THINK HE'S ODD. HE'S WAY OVER THEIR HEADS. YOU KNOW YOU THINK SO YOURSELF WHEN YOU TALK TO HIM. GOOD LORD, TOM, YOU USED TO STAND OUT AGAINST PEOPLE. SUCCESS HAS COMPLETELY CONVENTIONALIZED YOU. TOM GREW RATHER ANNOYED. WHAT'S HE TRYING TO DO? excessively holy no not like anybody you've ever seen never enters the philadelphian society he has no faith in that rot he doesn't believe that public swimming pools and a kind word in time will right the wrongs of the world moreover he takes a drink whenever he feels like it he certainly is getting in wrong have you talked to him lately no then you haven't any conception of him The argument ended nowhere, but Amory noticed more than ever how the sentiment toward Byrne had changed on the campus. "'It's odd,' Amory said to Tom one night, when they had grown more amicable on the subject, "'that the people who violently disapprove of Byrne's radicalism are distinctly the Pharisee class. I mean they're the best-educated men in college, the editors of the papers, like yourself and Ferenby, the younger professors.' THE ILLITERATE ATHLETES LIKE Langaduck, THINK HE'S GETTING ECCENTRIC, BUT THEY JUST SAY, GOOD OLD Byrne HAS GOT SOME QUEER IDEAS IN HIS HEAD, AND PASS ON. THE PHARISEE CLASS. GEE, THEY RIDICULE HIM UNMERCIFULLY. THE NEXT MORNING HE MET Byrne HURRYING ALONG MCCOSH WALK AFTER A RECITATION. WHITHER BOUND, SAR? OVER TO THE PRINCE OFFICE TO SEE Ferrenby. He waved a copy of the Morning's Princetonian at Amory. He wrote this editorial. "'Going to flay him alive?' "'No, but he's got me all balled up. Either I've misjudged him or he's suddenly become the world's worst radical.' Byrne hurried on, and it was several days before Amory heard an account of the ensuing conversation. Byrne had come into the Editor's sanctum, displaying the paper cheerfully. "'Hello, Jesse.' hello there savonarola i just read your editorial good boy didn't know you stooped that low jesse you startled me how so aren't you afraid the faculty get after you if you pull this religious stuff what like this morning what the devil that editorial was on the coaching system yes but that quotation jesse sat up what quotation you know he who is not with me is against me well what about it jesse was puzzled but not alarmed well you say here uh, let me see burn opened the paper and read he who is not with me is against me as that gentleman said who was notoriously capable of only coarse distinctions and puerile generalities "'What of it?' Ferrenby began to look alarmed. "'Oliver Cromwell said it, didn't he? Or was it Washington, or one of the Saints? Good Lord, I've forgotten!' Byrne roared with laughter. <laughs> "'Oh, Jesse! Oh, good kind Jesse!' "'Who said it for Pete's sake?' "'Well,' said Byrne, recovering his voice, "'St. Matthew attributes it to Christ.' "'My God!' cried Jesse, and collapsed backward into the wastebasket. Amory Writes a Poem The weeks tore by. Amory wandered occasionally to New York on the chance of finding a new shining green autobus, that its stick-of-candy glamour might penetrate his disposition. One day he ventured into a stock-company revival of a play whose name was faintly familiar. The curtain rose— he watched casually as a girl entered. A few phrases rang in his ear and touched a faint chord of memory. Where? When? Then he seemed to hear a voice whispering beside him, a very soft, vibrant voice. Oh, I'm such a poor little fool! Do tell me when I do wrong. The solution came in a flash, and he had a quick, glad memory of Isabel. He found a blank space on his program and began to scribble rapidly. Here in the figured dark I watch once more, There with a curtain roll the years away, Two years of years. There was an idle day of ours When happy endings didn't bore Our unfermented souls. I could adore your eager face beside me, wide-eyed, gay, Smiling a repertoire while the poor play Reached me as a faint ripple reaches shore. Yawning and wondering an evening through, I watch alone and chatterings of course spoil the one scene which somehow did have charms you wept a bit and i grew sad for you right here where mr x defends divorce and her name falls fainting in his arms end of this part of chapter 4 book 1 chapter 4 part 2 of this side of paradise this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina this side of paradise by f scott fitzgerald book 1 chapter 4 part 2 still calm ghosts are such dumb things said alec they're slow-witted i can always outguess a ghost how asked tom well it depends where take a bedroom for example if you use any discretion a ghost can never get you in a bedroom go on "'Suppose you think there's maybe a ghost in your bedroom. What measures do you take on getting home at night?' demanded Amory, interested. "'Take a stick,' answered Alec, with ponderous reverence. one about the length of a broom-handle? Now, the first thing to do is to get the room cleared. To do this you rush with your eyes closed into your study and turn on the lights. Next.' "'Approaching the closet, carefully run the stick in the door three or four times. "'Then, if nothing happens, you can look in. "'Always, always run the stick in viciously first. "'Never look first. "'Of course, that's the ancient Celtic school,' said Tom gravely. "'Yes, but they usually pray first. "'Anyway, you use this method to clear the closets, and also for behind all doors.' "'And the bed?' "'Amory suggested. "'Oh, Amory, no!' cried Alec in horror. "'That isn't the way. The bed requires different tactics. Let the bed alone, as you value your reason. If there is a ghost in the room, and that's only about a third of the time, it is almost always under the bed.' "'Well,' Amory began. Alec waved him into silence. "'Of course you never look.' you stand in the middle of the floor and before he knows what you're going to do make a sudden leap for the bed never walk near the bed to a ghost your ankle is your most vulnerable part once in bed you're safe he may lie around under the bed all night but you're safe as daylight if you still have doubts pull the blanket over your head all that's very interesting tom isn't it alec beamed proudly All my own, too. The Sir Oliver Lodge of the New World." Amory was enjoying college immensely again. The sense of going forward in a direct, determined line had come back. Youth was stirring and shaking out a few new feathers. He'd even stored enough surplus energy to sally into a new pose. "'What's the idea of all this distracted stuff, Amory?' asked Alec one day, and then as Amory pretended to be cramped over his book in a daze. "'Oh, don't try to act, Burne, The mystic to me!' Amory looked up innocently. "'What?' "'What?' mimicked Alec. "'Are you trying to read yourself into a rhapsody with—' "'Let's see the book!' He snatched it, regarded it derisively. "'Well?' asked Amory a little stiffly. THE LIFE OF ST. Teresa," read Alec aloud. OH. MY. GOSH. SAY, Alec. WHAT? DOES IT BOTHER YOU? DOES WHAT BOTHER ME? MY ACTING DAZED, AND ALL THAT? WHY, NO, OF COURSE IT DOESN'T BOTHER ME. WELL, THEN, DON'T SPOIL IT. IF I ENJOY GOING AROUND TELLING PEOPLE guilelessly THAT I THINK I'M A GENIUS, LET ME DO IT. "'You're getting a reputation for being eccentric,' said Alec, laughing. "'If that's what you mean!' Amory finally prevailed, and Alec agreed to accept his face value in the presence of others if he was allowed rest periods when they were alone. So Amory ran it out at a great rate, bringing the most eccentric characters to dinner, wild-eyed grad students, preceptors with strange theories of God and government to the cynical amazement of the supercilious cottage club. As February became slashed by sun and moved cheerfully into March, Amory went several times to spend weekends with Monsignor. Once he took Byrne, with great success, for he took equal pride and delight in displaying them to each other. Monsignor took him several times to see Thornton Hancock, and once or twice to the house of a Mrs. Lawrence, a type of Rome-haunting American whom Amory liked immediately. Then one day came a letter from Monsignor, which appended an interesting P.S. "'Do you know,' it ran, "'that your third cousin, Clara Page, widowed six-month and very poor, is living in Philadelphia? I don't think you've ever met her, but I wish, as a favour to me, you'd go to see her. To my mind she's rather a remarkable woman, and just about your age.' Amory sighed and decided to go, as a favour. CLARA She was immemorial. Amory wasn't good enough for Clara, Clara of Ripley golden hair, but then no man was. Her goodness was above the prosy morals of the husband-seeker, apart from the dull literature of female virtue sorrow lay lightly around her and when amory found her in philadelphia he thought her steely blue eyes held only happiness a latent strength a realism was brought to its fullest development by the facts that she was compelled to face she was alone in the world with two small children little money and worst of all a host of friends he saw her that winter in philadelphia entertaining a houseful of men for an evening when he knew she had not a servant in the house except the little colored girl guarding the babies overhead he saw one of the greatest libertines in that city a man who was habitually drunk and notorious at home and abroad sitting opposite her for an evening discussing girls boarding-schools with a sort of innocent excitement what a twist clara had to her mind she could make fascinating and almost brilliant conversation out of the thinnest air that ever floated through a drawing-room The idea that the girl was poverty-stricken had appealed to Amory's sense of situation. He arrived in Philadelphia, expecting to be told that 921 Ark Street was in a miserable lane of hovels. He was even disappointed when it had proved to be nothing of the sort. It was an old house that had been in her husband's family for years. An elderly aunt, who objected to having it sold, had put ten years' taxes with a lawyer and pranced off to Honolulu leaving clara to struggle with the heating problem as best she could so no wild-haired woman with a hungry baby at her breast and a sad amelia like look greeted him instead amory would have thought from his reception that she had not a care in the world a calm virility and a dreamy humor marked contrast to her level-headedness into these moods she slipped sometimes as a refuge she could do the most prosy things though she was wise enough never to stultify herself with such household arts as knitting and embroidery yet immediately afterward pick up a book and let her imagination rove as a formless cloud with the wind deepest of all in her personality was the golden radiance that she diffused around her as an open fire in a dark room throws romance and pathos into the quiet faces at its edge So she cast her lights and shadows around the rooms that held her, until she made of her prosy old uncle a man of quaint and meditative charm, metamorphosed the stray telegraph-boy into a puck-like creature of delightful originality. At first this quality of hers somehow irritated Amory. He considered his own uniqueness sufficient, and it rather embarrassed him when she tried to read new interests into him for the benefit of what other adorers were present. He felt as if a polite but insistent stage-manager were attempting to make him give a new interpretation of a part he had conned for years. But Clara talking, Clara telling a slender tale of a hat-bin and an inebriated man and herself, people tried afterward to repeat her anecdotes, but for the life of them they could make them sound like nothing whatever. They gave her a sort of innocent attention, and the best smiles many of them had smiled for long. There were few tears in Clara, but people smiled misty-eyed at her. Very occasionally Amory stayed for little half-hours after the rest of the court had gone, and they would have bread and jam and tea late in the afternoon, or maple-sugar lunches, as she called them, at night. You are remarkable, aren't you? Amory was becoming trite from where he perched in the centre of the dining-room table, one six o'clock. "'Not a bit,' she answered. She was searching out napkins in the sideboard. "'I'm really most humdrum and commonplace. One of those people who have no interest in anything but their children.' "'Tell that to somebody else,' scoffed Amory. "'You know you're perfectly effulgent.' He asked her the one thing that he knew might embarrass her— it was the remark that the first boar made to adam tell me about yourself and she gave the answer that adam must have given there's nothing to tell but eventually adam probably told the boar all the things he thought about at night when the locusts sang in the sandy grass and he must have remarked patronizingly how different he was from eve forgetting how different she was from him at any rate Clara told Amory much about herself that evening. She had had a harried life from sixteen on, and her education had stopped suddenly with her leisure. Browsing in her library, Amory found a tattered grey book, out of which fell a yellow sheet that he impudently opened. It was a poem that she had written at school about a grey convent wall on a grey day, and a girl with her cloak blown by the wind sitting atop of it, and thinking about the many-coloured world. As a rule such sentiment bored him, but this was done with so much simplicity and atmosphere that it brought a picture of Clara to his mind, of Clara on such a cool grey day with her keen blue eyes staring out, trying to see her tragedies come marching over the gardens outside. He envied that poem. How he would have loved to have come along and seen her on the wall, and talked nonsense or romance to her! perched above him in the air. He began to be frightfully jealous of everything about Clara, of her past, of her babies, of the men and women who flock to drink deep of her cool kindness and rest their tired minds as at an absorbing play. "'Nobody seems to bore you,' he objected. "'About half the world do,' she admitted. "'But I think that's a pretty good average, don't you?' and she turned to find something in Browning that bore on the subject. She was the only person he ever met who could look up passages and quotations to show him in the middle of the conversation, and yet not be irritating to distraction. She did it constantly, with such a serious enthusiasm that he grew fond of watching her golden hair bent over a book, brow wrinkled ever so little at hunting her sentence. Through early March he took to going to Philadelphia for weekends— Almost always there was someone else there, and she seemed not anxious to see him alone, for many occasions presented themselves when a word from her would have given him another delicious half-hour of adoration. But he fell gradually in love, and began to speculate wildly on marriage. Though this design flowed through his brain even to his lips, still he knew afterward that the desire had not been deeply rooted once he dreamt that it had come true and woke up in a cold panic for in his dream she had been a silly flaxen clara with the gold gone out of her hair and platitudes falling insipidly from her changeling tongue but she was the first fine woman he ever knew and one of the few good people who ever interested him she made her goodness such an asset Amory had decided that most good people either dragged theirs after them as a liability, or else distorted it to artificial geniality. And, of course, there were the ever-present Prig and Pharisee, but Amory never included them as being among the saved. ST. CECILIA Over her grey and velvet dress, under her molten beaten hair, color of rose in mock distress flushes and fades and makes her fair fills the air from her to him with light and languor and little sighs just so subtly he scarcely knows laughing lightning color of rose do you like me of course i do said clara seriously why well we have some qualities in common things that are spontaneous in each of us or were originally you're implying that i haven't used myself very well clara hesitated well i can't judge a man of course has to go through a lot more and i've been sheltered oh don't stall please clara amory interrupted but do talk about me a little won't you surely i'd adore too she didn't smile that's sweet of you first answer some questions am i painfully conceited well no you have tremendous vanity but it'll amuse the people who notice its preponderance i see you're really humble at heart you sink to the third hell of depression when you think you've been slighted in fact you haven't much self-respect centre of target twice, Clara. How do you do it? You never let me say a word. Of course not. I can never judge a man while he's talking. But I'm not through. The reason you have so little real self-confidence, even though you gravely announce to the occasional Philistine that you think you're a genius, is that you've attributed all sorts of atrocious faults to yourself, and are trying to live up to them. For instance— you're always saying that you are a slave to highballs but i am potentially and you say you're a weak character that you've no will not a bit of will i'm a slave to my emotions to my likes to my hatred of boredom to most of my desires you are not she brought one little fist down onto the other you're a slave a bound helpless slave to one thing in the world your imagination you certainly interest me if this isn't boring you go on i notice that when you want to stay over an extra day from college you go about it in a sure way you never decide at first while the merits of going or staying are fairly clear in your mind you let your imagination shinny on the side of your desires for a few hours and then you decide naturally your imagination after a little freedom thinks up a million reasons why you should stay, but your decision when it comes isn't true. It's biased.' "'Yes,' objected Amory. "'But it isn't lack of will-power to let my imagination shinny on the wrong side.' "'My dear boy, there's your big mistake. This has nothing to do with will-power. That's a crazy useless word. Anyway, you lacked judgment.' THE JUDGMENT TO DECIDE AT ONCE WHEN YOU KNOW YOUR IMAGINATION WILL PLAY YOU FALSE, GIVEN HALF A CHANCE." "'Well, I'll be darned!' exclaimed Amory in surprise. "'That's the last thing I expected.' Clara didn't gloat. She changed the subject immediately. But she had started him thinking, and he believed she was partly right. He felt like a factory owner who, after accusing a clerk of dishonesty, finds that his own son in the office is changing the books once a week his poor mistreated will that he had been holding up to the scorn of himself and his friends stood before him innocent and his judgment walked off to prison with the unconfinable imp imagination dancing in mocking glee beside him clara's was the only advice he ever asked without dictating the answer himself except perhaps in his talks with monsignor darcy how he loved to do any sort of thing with clara shopping with her was a rare epicurean dream in every store where she had ever traded she was whispered about as the beautiful mrs page i bet she won't stay single long well don't scream it out she ain't looking for no advice ain't she beautiful enter a floor walker silence till he moves forward smirking society person ain't she yeah but poor now i guess so they say gee girls ain't she some kid and clara beamed on all alike amory believed that trade people gave her discounts sometimes to her knowledge and sometimes without it he knew she dressed very well had always the best of everything in the house and was inevitably waited upon by the head floor walker at the very least Sometimes they would go to church together on Sunday and he would walk beside her and revel in her cheeks, moist from the soft water in the new air. She was very devout, always had been, and God knows what height she attained and what strength she drew down to herself when she knelt and bent her golden hair into the stained glass light. "'St. Cecilia!' he cried aloud one day, quite involuntarily, and the people turned and peered and the priest paused in his sermon, and Clara and Amory turned to fiery red. That was the last Sunday they had, for he spoiled it all that night. He couldn't help it. They were walking through the March twilight where it was as warm as June, and the joy of youth filled his soul so that he felt he must speak. "'I think,' he said, and his voice trembled, "'that if I lost faith in you, I'd lose faith in God.' she looked at him with such a startled face that he asked her the matter nothing she said slowly only this five men have said that to me before and it frightens me oh clara is that your fate she did not answer i suppose love to you is he began she turned like a flash i have never been in love they walked along and he realized slowly how much she had told him never in love she seemed suddenly a daughter of light alone his entity dropped out of her plane and he longed only to touch her dress with almost the realization that joseph must have had of mary's eternal significance but quite mechanically he heard himself saying and i love you any latent greatness that i've got is Oh, I can't talk. But, Clara, if I come back in two years in a position to marry you—' She shook her head. "'No,' she said. "'I'd never marry again. I've got my two children, and I want myself for them. I like you. I like all clever men. You more than any. But you know me well enough to know that I'd never marry a clever man.' She broke off suddenly. "'Emory?' "'What?' you're not in love with me you never wanted to marry me did you it was the twilight he said wonderingly i didn't feel as though i were speaking aloud but i love you or adore you or worship you there you go running through your catalogue of emotions in five seconds he smiled unwillingly don't make me out such a lightweight clara you are depressing sometimes you're not a lightweight of all things she said intently taking his arm and opening wide her eyes he could see their kindliness in the fading dusk a lightweight is an eternal nay there's so much spring in the air there's so much lazy sweetness in your heart she dropped his arm you're all fine now and i feel glorious give me a cigarette you've never seen me smoke have you well i do about once a month and then that wonderful girl and amory raced to the corner like two mad children galled wild with pale blue twilight i'm going to the country for to-morrow she announced as she stood panting safe beyond the flare of the corner lamp-post these days are too magnificent to miss though perhaps I feel them more in the city. "'Oh, Clara!' Amory said. "'What a devil you could have been if the Lord had just bent your soul a little the other way!' "'Maybe,' she answered. "'But I think not. I'm never really wild and never have been. That little outburst was pure spring.' "'And you are, too,' said he. They were walking along now. No, you're wrong again. How can a person of your own self-reputed brains be so constantly wrong about me? I'm the opposite of everything spring ever stood for. It's unfortunate, if I happen to look like what pleased some soppy old Greek sculptor, but I assure you that if it weren't for my face, I'd be a quiet nun in the convent without—' Then she broke into a run, and her raised voice floated back to him as he followed— my precious babies which i must go back and see she was the only girl he ever knew with whom he could understand how another man might be preferred often amory met wives whom he had known as debutantes and looking intently at them imagined that he found something in their faces which said oh if i could have only gotten you oh the enormous conceit of the man BUT THAT NIGHT SEEMED A NIGHT OF STARS AND SINGING, AND CLARA'S BRIGHT SOUL STILL GLEAMED ON THE WAYS THEY HAD TROD. GOLDEN, GOLDEN IS THE AIR, HE CHANTED TO THE LITTLE POOLS OF WATER. GOLDEN IS THE AIR, GOLDEN NOTES FROM GOLDEN MANDOLINS, GOLDEN FRETS OF GOLDEN VIOLINS, FAIR, OH, WEARILY FAIR. skeins FROM BRAIDED BASKET, MORTALS MAY NOT HOLD. Oh, what strong, extravagant God! Who would know or ask it? Who could give such gold? End of this part of Chapter 4 Book 1, Chapter 4, Part 3 Of This Side of Paradise this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This side of paradise by F Scott Fitzgerald. Book 1, chapter 4, part 3. Amory is resentful. Slowly and inevitably, yet with a sudden surge at the last while amory talked and dreamed war rolled swiftly up the beach and washed the sands where princeton played every night the gymnasium echoed as platoon after platoon swept over the floor and shuffled out the basketball markings when amory went to washington the next weekend he caught some of the spirit of crisis which changed to repulsion in the pullman car coming back for the berths across from him were occupied by stinking aliens—Greeks, he guessed, or Russians. He thought how much easier patriotism had been to a homogeneous race, how much easier it would have been to fight as the colonies fought, or as the Confederacy fought. And he did no sleeping that night, but listened to the aliens guffaw and snore while they filled the car with the heavy scent of latest America. In Princeton everyone bantered in public and told themselves privately that their deaths at least would be heroic. The literary students read Rupert Brooke passionately. The lounge-lizards worried over whether the government would permit the English-cut uniform for officers. A few of the hopelessly lazy wrote to the obscure branches of the War Department, seeking an easy commission and a soft berth. Then after a week Amory saw Byrne and knew at once that argument would be futile. Byrne had come out as a pacifist. The Socialist magazines, a great smattering of Tolstoy, and his own intense longing for a cause that would bring out whatever strength lay in him, had finally decided him to preach peace as a subjective ideal. When the German army entered Belgium, he began, if the inhabitants had gone peaceably about their business, the German army would have been disorganized and— I know, Amory interrupted. I've heard it all, but I'm not going to talk propaganda with you. There's a chance that you're right, but even so, we're hundreds of years before the time when non-resistance can touch us as a reality. But Amory, listen, burn—we just argue. Very well. Just one thing: I don't ask you to think of your family or friends because I know they don't count a picayune with you beside your sense of duty. BUT, BERN, HOW DO YOU KNOW THAT THE MAGAZINES YOU READ AND THE SOCIETIES YOU JOIN AND THESE IDEALISTS YOU MEET AREN'T JUST PLAIN GERMAN? SOME OF THEM ARE, OF COURSE. HOW DO YOU KNOW THEY AREN'T ALL PRO-GERMAN, JUST A LOT OF WEAK ONES WITH GERMAN-Jewish NAMES? THAT'S THE CHANCE, OF COURSE, HE SAID SLOWLY. HOW MUCH OR HOW LITTLE I'M TAKING THIS STAND BECAUSE OF PROPAGANDA I'VE HEARD, I DON'T KNOW naturally i think that it's my most innermost conviction it seems a path spread before me just now amory's heart sank but think of the cheapness of it no one's really going to martyr you for being a pacifist it's just going to throw you in with the worst i doubt it he interrupted well it all smells of bohemian new york to me I know what you mean, and that's why I'm not sure I'll agitate. You're one man, Byrne, going to talk to people who won't listen, with all God's given you. That's what Stephen must have thought many years ago. But he preached his sermon and they killed him. He probably thought as he was dying what a waste it all was. But you see, I've always felt that Stephen's death was the thing that occurred to Paul on the road to Damascus and send him to preach the word of christ all over the world go on that's all this is my particular duty even if right now i'm just a pawn just sacrificed god amory you don't think i like the germans well i can't say anything else i get to the end of all the logic about non-resistance and there, like an excluded middle, stands the huge spectre of a man as he is and always will be, and this spectre stands right beside the one logical necessity of Tolstoy's, and the other logical necessity of Nietzsche's." Amory broke off suddenly. "'When are you going?' "'I'm going next week.' "'I'll see you, of course.' As he walked away it seemed to Amory that the look in his face bore a great resemblance to that in Carey's when he had said good-bye under Blair Arch two years before. Amory wondered unhappily why he could never go into anything with the primal honesty of those two. "'Burn's a fanatic,' he said to Tom, and he's dead wrong, and I'm inclined to think just an unconscious pawn in the hands of anarchistic publishers and German-paid rag-wavers. But he haunts me, just leaving everything worth while.' Byrne left in a quietly dramatic manner a week later. He sold all his possessions and came down to the room to say good with a battered old bicycle on which he intended to ride to his home in Pennsylvania. "'Peter the Hermit bidding farewell to Cardinal Richelieu,' suggested Alec, who was lounging in the window-seat as Byrne and Amory shook hands. But Amory was not in a mood for that, and as he saw Byrne's long legs propel his ridiculous bicycle out of sight beyond Alexander Hall, he knew he was going to have a bad week. Not that he doubted the war. Germany stood for everything repugnant to him, for materialism and the direction of tremendous licentious force. It was just that Byrne's face stayed in his memory, and he was sick of the hysteria he was beginning to hear. "'What on earth is the use of suddenly running down Goethe?' he declared to Alec and Tom. "'Why write books to prove he started the war, or that that stupid overestimated Schiller is a demon in disguise?' "'Have you read anything of theirs?' asked Tom shrewdly. "'No,' Amory admitted. "'Neither have I,' he said, laughing. "'People will shout,' said Alec quietly. But Girthy's on his same old shelf in the library. To bore anyone that wants to read him." Amory subsided, and the subject dropped. What are you going to do, Amory? Infantry or aviation? I can't make up my mind. I hate mechanics, but then, of course, aviation's the thing for me. I feel as Amory does, said Tom. Infantry or aviation? Aviation sounds like the romantic side of the war, of course, like cavalry used to be, you know, but like Amory, I don't know a horsepower from a piston rod. Somehow Amory's dissatisfaction with his lack of enthusiasm culminated in an attempt to put the blame for the whole war on the ancestors of his generation. All the people who cheered for Germany in eighteen seventy. All the materialists rampant, all the idolizers of german science and efficiency so he sat one day in an english lecture and heard locksley hall quoted and fell into a brown study with contempt for tennyson and and all he stood for for he took him as a representative of the victorians 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 who never learned to weep who sowed the bitter harvest that your children go to reap scribbled amory in his notebook The lecturer was saying something about Tennyson's solidity, and fifty heads were bent to take notes. Amory turned over to a fresh page and began scrawling again. They shuddered when they found what Mr. Darwin was about. They shuddered when the waltz came in, and Newman hurried out. But the waltz came in much earlier. He crossed that out. AND ENTITLED A SONG IN THE TIME OF ORDER came the Professor's voice, droning far away. Time of order! Good Lord! Everything crammed in the box, and the Victorians sitting on the lid, smiling serenely. With Browning in his Italian villa, crying bravely, All's for the best! Amory scribbled again. You knelt up in the temple, and he bent to hear you pray. You thanked him for your glorious gains, reproached him for Cathay. Why could he never get more than a couplet at a time? Now he needed something to rhyme with. You would keep him straight with science, though he had gone wrong before. Well, anyway. You met your children in your home. I fixed it up, you cried. Took your fifty years of Europe, and then virtuously died. That was, to a great extent, Tennyson's idea, came the lecturer's voice. Swinburne's song in the time of order might well have been Tennyson's title. He idealized order against chaos, against waste. At last Amory had it. He turned over another page and scrawled vigorously for the twenty minutes that was left of the hour. Then he walked up to the desk and deposited a page torn out of his notebook. "'Here's a poem to the Victorian, sir,' he said coldly the professor picked it up curiously while amory backed rapidly through the door here is what he had written songs in the time of order you left for us to sing proofs with excluded middles answers to life and rhyme keys of the prison water and ancient bells to ring time was the end of riddles we were the end of time here were domestic oceans and a sky that we might reach guns and a guarded border, gantlets but not to fling, thousands of old emotions and a platitude for each, songs in the time of order, and tongues that we might sing. THE END OF MANY THINGS Early April slipped by in a haze, a haze of long evenings on the club veranda with a gramophone playing Poor Butterfly inside for Poor Butterfly had been the song of that last year. The war seemed scarcely to touch them, and it might have been one of the senior springs of the past, except for the drilling every other afternoon, yet Amory realized poignantly that this was the last spring under the old regime. "'This is the great protest against the superman,' said Amory. "'I suppose so,' Alec agreed. "'He's absolutely irreconcilable with any utopia as long as he occurs there's trouble and all the latent evil that makes a crowd list and sway when he talks and of course all that he is is a gifted man without a moral sense that's all i think the worst thing to contemplate is this it's all happened before how soon will it happen again fifty years after waterloo napoleon was as much a hero to english school children as wellington how do we know our grandchildren won't idealize von Hindenburg the same way? What brings it about? Time, damn it, and the historian! If we could only learn to look on evil as evil, whether it's clothed in filth or monotony or magnificence! God, haven't we raked the universe over the coals for four years?" Then the night came that was to be the last. Tom and Amory bound in the morning for different training camps, paced the shadowy walks as usual, and seemed still to see around them the faces of the men they knew. The grass is full of ghosts tonight. The whole campus is alive with them. They paused by little and watched the moon rise, to make silver of the slate roof of Dodd, and blue the rustling trees. You know, whispered Tom what we feel now is the sense of all the gorgeous youth that has rioted through here in two hundred years a last burst of singing flooded up from blair arch broken voices for some long parting and what we leave here is more than this class it's the whole heritage of youth we're just one generation We're breaking all the links that seem to bind us here to top-booted and high-stocked generations. We've walked arm-in-arm with Burr and Light Horse Harry Lee through half these deep-blue nights. That's what they are, Tom Tanch did off. Deep blue. A bit of colour would spoil them, make them exotic. Spires, against a sky that's a promise of dawn, and blue light on the slate roofs. It hurts, rather." good-bye aaron burr amory called toward deserted nassau hall you and i knew strange corners of life his voice echoed in the stillness the torches are out whispered tom ah messalina the long shadows of building minarets on the stadium FOR AN INSTANT THE VOICES OF FRESHMAN YEAR SURGED AROUND THEM, AND THEN THEY LOOKED AT EACH OTHER WITH FAINT TEARS IN THEIR EYES. DAMN! DAMN! THE LAST LIGHT FADES AND DRIFTS ACROSS THE LAND. THE LOW LONG LAND, THE SUNNY LAND OF SPIRES, THE GHOSTS OF EVENING TUNE AGAINST THEIR lyres AND WANDER SINGING IN A PLAINTIVE BAND DOWN THE LONG CORRIDORS OF TREES pale fires echo the night from tower top to tower oh sleep that dreams and dream that never tires press from the petals of the lotus flower something of this to keep the essence of an hour no more to wait the twilight of the moon in this sequestered veil of star and spire for one eternal morning of desire passes to time and earthy afternoon here heraclitus did you find in fire and shifting things the prophecy you hurled down the dead years this midnight my desire will see shadowed among the embers furled in flame the splendor and the sadness of the world interlude may nineteen seventeen to february nineteen nineteen a letter dated January 1918, written by Monsignor Darcy to Amory, who is a second lieutenant in the 171st Infantry, Port of Embarkation, Camp Mills, Long Island. "'My dear boy, all you need tell me of yourself is that you still are. For the rest I merely search back in a restive memory, a thermometer that records only fevers, and match you with what I was at your age.' BUT MEN WILL CHATTER, AND YOU AND I WILL STILL SHOUT OUR FUTILITIES TO EACH OTHER ACROSS THE STAGE UNTIL THE LAST SILLY curtain FALLS, PLUMP, UPON OUR BOBBING HEADS. BUT YOU ARE STARTING THE SPLUTTERING MAGIC-LANTERN SHOW OF LIFE WITH MUCH THE SAME ARRAY OF SLIDES AS I HAD, SO I NEED TO WRITE YOU IF ONLY TO SHRIEK THE COLOSSAL STUPIDITY OF PEOPLE." This is the end of one thing, for better or worse you will never again be quite the Amory Blaine that I knew. Never again will we meet as we have met, because your generation is growing hard, much harder than mine ever grew, nourished as they were on the stuff of the nineties. Amory, lately I reread read Aeschylus, and there in the divine irony of the Agamemnon I find the only answer to this bitter age— all the world tumbled about our ears and the closest parallel ages back in that hopeless resignation there are times when i think of the men out there as roman legionaries miles from their corrupt city stemming back the hordes hordes a little more menacing after all than the corrupt city another blind blow at the race furies that we passed with ovations years ago over whose corpses we bleated triumphantly all through the Victorian era. And afterward, an out-and-out materialistic world, and the Catholic Church. I wonder where you'll fit in. Of one thing I'm sure. Celtic you'll live, and Celtic you'll die. So if you don't use Heaven as a continual referendum for your ideas, you'll find Earth a continual recall to your ambitions. Amory, I've discovered suddenly that I'm an old man. Like all old men, I've had dreams sometimes, and I'm going to tell you of them. I've enjoyed imagining that you were my son, that perhaps when I was young I went into a state of coma and begat you, and when I came to had no recollection of it. It's the paternal instinct, Amory. Celibacy goes deeper than the flesh. SOMETIMES I THINK THAT THE EXPLANATION OF OUR DEEP RESEMBLANCE IS SOME COMMON ANCESTOR, AND I FIND THAT THE ONLY BLOOD THAT THE Darcys AND THE O'HARAS HAVE IN COMMON IS THAT OF THE O'DONOHUES. STEPHEN WAS HIS NAME, I THINK. WHEN THE LIGHTNING STRIKES ONE OF US, IT STRIKES BOTH. YOU HAD HARDLY ARRIVED AT THE PORT OF embarkation WHEN I GOT MY PAPERS TO START FOR ROME, AND I AM WAITING EVERY MOMENT TO BE TOLD WHERE TO TAKE SHIP. EVEN BEFORE YOU GET THIS LETTER I SHALL BE ON THE OCEAN. THEN WILL COME YOUR TURN. YOU WENT TO WAR AS A GENTLEMAN SHOULD, JUST AS YOU WENT TO SCHOOL AND COLLEGE, BECAUSE IT WAS THE THING TO DO. IT'S BETTER TO LEAVE THE BLUSTERING AND TREMULO HEROISM TO THE MIDDLE CLASSES. THEY DO IT SO MUCH BETTER. DO YOU REMEMBER THAT WEEKEND LAST MARCH WHEN YOU BROUGHT BURN HOLIDAY FROM PRINCETON TO SEE ME? WHAT A MAGNIFICENT BOY HE IS! It gave me a frightful shock afterward when you wrote that he thought me splendid. How could he be so deceived? Splendid is the one thing that neither you nor I are. We are many other things. We're extraordinary. We're clever. We could be said, I suppose, to be brilliant. We can attract people. We can make atmosphere. We can almost lose our Celtic souls and Celtic subtleties. We can almost always have our own way but splendid, rather not. I am going to Rome with a wonderful dossier and letters of introduction that cover every capital in Europe, and there will be no small stir when I get there. How I wish you were with me! This sounds like a rather cynical paragraph, not at all the sort of thing that a middle-aged clergyman should write to a youth about to depart for the war. The only excuse is that the middle-aged clergyman is— talking to himself. There are deep things in us, and you know what they are as well as I do. We have great faith, though yours at present is uncrystallized. We have a terrible honesty that all our sophistry cannot destroy, and, above all, a childlike simplicity that keeps us from ever being really malicious. I have written a keen for you which follows. I am sorry your cheeks are not up to the description I have written of them, but you will smoke and read all night. At any rate here it is A lament for a foster son, and he going to the war against the king of Foreign O'Conne, he's gone from me the son of my mind, and he in his golden youth like Angus Ojay, Angus of the Bright Birds, and his mind strong and subtle like the mind of Kukulin on Wirthirne us through, His brow is as white as the milk of the cows of Maeve, and his cheeks like the cherries of the tree, and it bending down to Mary, and she feeding the Son of God. AVILIYACHFRONE His hair is like the golden collar of the kings at Terra, and his eyes like the four grey seas of Erin, and they swept with the mists of rain. MAVRONE GOKUDYO. HE IS TO BE IN THE JOYFUL AND RED BATTLE, AGAINST THE CHIEFTAINS AND THEY DOING GREAT DEEDS OF VALOR. HIS LIFE TO GO FROM HIM, IT IS THE CORDS OF MY OWN SOUL, would BE loosed. AVISTILISH. MY HEART IS IN THE HEART OF MY SON, AND MY LIFE IS IN HIS LIFE, SURELY. A MAN CAN BE TWICE YOUNG, IN THE LIFE OF HIS SONS ONLY. Hia DUVAHA Alanav. May the Son of God be above him and beneath him, before him and behind him. May the King of the Elements cast a mist over the eyes of the King of Foreign. May the Queen of the Graces lead him by the hand, the way he can go through the midst of his enemies and they not seeing him. May Patrick of the Gael and Colum of the Churches and the five thousand Saints of Erin be better than a shield to him and he got into the fight och ochone amory amory i feel somehow that this is all one or both of us is not going to last out this war i've been trying to tell you how much this reincarnation of myself and you has meant in the last few years curiously alike we are curiously unlike good dear boy and god be with you signed thayer d'arcy embarking at night amory moved forward on the deck until he found a stool under an electric light he searched in his pocket for notebook and pencil and then began to write slowly laboriously we leave tonight silent we filled the still deserted street a column of dim gray, and ghosts rose startled at the muffled beat along the moonless way, the shadowy shipyards echoed to the feet that turned from night and day. And so we linger on the windless decks, see on the spectre shore, shades of a thousand days, poor gray-ribbed wrecks. Oh, shall we then deplore those futile years, see how the sea is white! The clouds HAVE broken and the heavens burn, to hollow highways paved with gravelled light. The churning of the waves about the stern rises to one voluminous nocturne. We leave tonight. A letter from Amory, headed, Brest, March eleventh, nineteen nineteen, to Lieutenant T. P. Donvillier, Camp Gordon, Georgia. Dear Baudelaire, we meet in Manhattan on the 30th of this very month. We then proceed to take a very sporty apartment, you and I and Alec, who is at me elbow as I write. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have a vague dream of going into politics. Why is it that the pick of the young Englishman from Oxford and Cambridge go into politics, and in the U.S.A. we leave it to the muckers? Raised in the ward, educated in the Assembly, and sent to Congress, fat-paunched bundles of corruption, devoid of both ideas and ideals, as the debaters used to say. Even forty years ago we had good men in politics, but we, we are brought up to pile up a million and show what we are made of. Sometimes I wish I'd been an Englishman. American life is so damned dumb and stupid and healthy. Since poor Beatrice died I'll probably have a little money, but very darn little. I can forgive Mother almost everything except the fact that in a sudden burst of religiosity toward the end she left half of what remained to be spent in stained-glass windows and seminary endowments. Mr. Barton, my lawyer, writes me that my thousands are mostly in street railways, and that the said street railways are losing money because of the five-cent fares. Imagine a salary list that gives three hundred and fifty dollars a month to a man that can't read and write. Yet I believe in it, even though I've seen what was once a sizable fortune melt away between speculation, extravagance, the democratic administration, and the income tax. Modern. That's me all over, Mabel. At any rate, we'll have really knock-out rooms. You can get a job on some fashion magazine, and Alec can go into the zinc company, or whatever it is that his people own he's looking over my shoulder and he says it's a brass company but i don't think it matters much do you there's probably as much corruption in zinc made money as brass made money as for the well-known amory he would write immortal literature if he were sure enough about anything to risk telling anyone else about it there is no more dangerous gift to posterity than a few cleverly turned platitudes tom why don't you become a catholic of course to be a good one you'd have to give up those violent intrigues you used to tell me about, but you'd write better poetry if you were linked up to tall golden candlesticks and long even chants, and even if the American priests are rather bourgeois, as Beatrice used to say, still you need only go to the sporty churches, and I'll introduce you to Monsignor Darcy, who really is a wonder. Kerry's death was a blow, so was Jessie's to a certain extent. And have a great curiosity to know what queer corner of the world has swallowed Byrne. Do you suppose he's in prison under some false name? I confess that the war, instead of making me orthodox, which is the correct reaction, has made me a passionate agnostic. The Catholic Church has had its wings clipped so often lately that its part was timidly negligible, and they haven't any good writers any more. I'm sick of Chesterton. I've only discovered one soldier who passed through the much-advertised spiritual crisis, like this fellow, Donald Hankey, and the one I knew was already studying for the Ministry, so he was ripe for it. I honestly think that's all pretty much rot, though it seemed to give sentimental comfort to those at home, and may make fathers and mothers appreciate their children. This crisis-inspired religion is rather valueless and fleeting at best. I think four men have discovered Paris to one that discovered God. But us, you and me and Alec, oh, we'll get a Jap butler and dress for dinner and have wine on the table, and lead a contemplative, emotionless life until we decide to use machine guns with the property owners, or throw bombs with the Bolshevik God. Tom, I hope something happens. I'm restless as the devil, and I have a horror of getting fat or falling in love and growing domestic. The place at Lake Geneva is now for rent, but when I land, I'm going west to see Mr. Barton and get some details. Write me care of the Blackstone, Chicago. soever, dear Boswell. Signed, Samuel Johnson. End of chapter book 2 chapter 1 of this side of paradise this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina this side of paradise by f scott fitzgerald Book Two-The Education of a Personage Chapter One-The Debutante The time is February. The place is a large dainty bedroom in the Connage House on Sixty-eighth Street, New York. A girl's room. Pink walls and curtains and a pink bedspread on a cream-colored bed. Pink and cream are the motifs of the room but the only article of furniture in full view is a luxurious dressing-table with a glass top and a three-sided mirror. On the walls there is an expensive print of CHERRY RIPE, A FEW POLITE DOGS by Landsayer, AND THE KING OF THE BLACK ISLES by Maxfield Parrish. GREAT DISORDER CONSISTING OF THE FOLLOWING ITEMS. 1. SEVEN OR EIGHT EMPTY cardboard BOXES, WITH TISSUE-PAPER TONGUES HANGING PANTING FROM THEIR MOUTHS two, an assortment of street-dresses mingled with their sisters of the evening, all upon the table, all evidently new, three, a roll of tulle, which has lost its dignity and round itself tortuously around everything in sight, and four, upon the two small chairs, a collection of lingerie, the beggar's description." one would enjoy seeing the bill called forth by the finery displayed and one is possessed by a desire to see the princess for whose benefit look there's someone disappointment this is only a maid hunting for something she lifts a heap from a chair not there another heap the dressing table the chiffonier drawers she brings to light several beautiful chemises and an amazing pajama but this does not satisfy her she goes out. An indistinguishable mumble from the next room. Now we are getting warm. This is Alec's mother, Mrs. Connage, ample, dignified, rouged to the dowager point, and quite worn out. Her lips move significantly as she looks for it. Her search is less thorough than the maid's, but there is a touch of fury in it that quite makes up for its sketchiness. She stumbles on the tool, and her damn is quite audible she retires empty-handed more chatter outside and a girl's voice a very spoiled voice says of all the stupid people after a pause a third seeker enters not she of the spoiled voice but a younger edition this is cecilia connitch sixteen pretty shrewd and constitutionally good-humored she is dressed for the evening in a gown the obvious simplicity of which probably bores her she goes to the nearest pile selects a small pink garment and holds it up appraisingly cecilia pink rosalind outside yes cecilia very snappy rosalind yes cecilia i've got it she sees herself in the mirror of the dressing-table and commences to shimmy enthusiastically. Rosalind, outside.
0: "'What are
1: you doing, trying it on?' Cecilia ceases and goes out, carrying the garment at the right shoulder. From the other door enters Alec Connage. He looks around quickly and in a huge voice shouts, "Mamma!" There is a chorus of protest from next door, and encouraged he starts toward it, but is repelled by another chorus. ALEC. So that's where you all are. Amory Blaine is here. Cecilia. quickly, Take him downstairs. ALEC. Oh, he is downstairs. Mrs. Connage. Well, you can show him where his room is. Tell him I'm sorry that I can't meet him now. ALEC. He's heard a lot about you all. I wish you'd hurry. Father's telling him all about the war, and he's restless. HE'S SORT OF TEMPERAMENTAL. THIS LAST SUFFICES TO DRAW CECILIA INTO THE ROOM. CECILIA, seating HERSELF HIGH UPON LINGERIE. HOW DO YOU MEAN, TEMPERAMENTAL? YOU USED TO SAY THAT ABOUT HIM IN LETTERS. ALEC. OH, HE WRITES STUFF. CECILIA. DOES HE PLAY THE PIANO? ALEC. DON'T THINK SO. CECILIA. SPECULATIVELY. DRINK? alec yes nothing queer about him cecilia money alec good lord ask him he used to have a lot and he's got some income now mrs connage appears mrs connage alec of course we're glad to have any friend of yours alec you certainly ought to meet amory mrs connage of course i want to "'but I think it's so childish of you to leave a perfectly good home "'to go and live with two other boys in some impossible apartment. "'I hope it isn't in order that you all drink as much as you want.' "'She pauses. "'He'll be a little neglected to-night. "'This is Rosalind's week, you see. "'When a girl comes out she needs all the attention.' "'Rosalind outside. "'Well then, prove it by coming here and hooking me.' Mrs connage goes Alec Rosalind hasn't changed a bit Cecilia in a lower tone. She's awfully spoiled Alec She'll meet her match tonight Cecilia Who? Mr Amory Blaine? Alec nods. Cecilia Well, Rosalind has still to meet the man she can't outdistance. Honestly, Alec, she treats men terribly she abuses them and cuts them and breaks dates with them and yawns in their faces and they come back for more alec they love it cecilia they hate it she's a she's a sort of vampire i think and she can make girls do what she wants usually only she hates girls alec personality runs in our family. Cecilia resignedly. I guess it ran out before it got to me. Alec. Does Rosalind behave herself? Cecilia. Not particularly well. Oh, she's average, smokes sometimes, drinks punch, frequently kissed. Oh, yes, common knowledge. One of the effects of the war, you know. Emerges Mrs. Connage. Mrs. Connage. Rosalind's almost finished, and I can go down and meet your friend. Alec and his mother go out. Rosalind outside. Oh mother Cecilia, mother's gone down. And now Rosalind enters. Rosalind is utterly Rosalind. She is one of those girls who need never make the slightest effort to have men fall in love with them. Two types of men seldom do. Dull men are usually afraid of her cleverness, and intellectual men are usually afraid of her beauty. All others are hers by natural prerogative. If Rosalind could be spoiled the process would have been complete by this time, and as a matter of fact her disposition is not all it should be. She wants what she wants when she wants it, and she is prone to make every one around her pretty miserable when she doesn't get it. But in the true sense she is not spoiled. Her fresh enthusiasm, her will to grow and learn, her endless faith in the inexhaustibility of romance, her courage and fundamental honesty, these things are not spoiled. There are long periods when she cordially loathes her whole family. She is quite unprincipled. Her philosophy is carpe diem for herself and laissez-faire for others. She loves shocking stories. She has that coarse streak that usually goes with natures that are both fine and big. She wants people to like her, but if they do not it never worries her or changes her. She is by no means a model character. The education of all beautiful women is the knowledge of men. Rosalind has been disappointed in man after man as individuals, but she had great faith in man as a sex. Women she detested. They represented qualities that she felt and despised in herself—incipient meanness, conceit, cowardice, and petty dishonesty. She once told a roomful of her mother's friends that the only excuse for women was the necessity for a disturbing element among men. She danced exceptionally well, drew cleverly but hastily, and had a startling facility with words, which she used only in love-letters but all criticism of Rosalind ends in her beauty. There was that shade of glorious yellow hair, the desire to imitate which supports the dye industry. There was the eternal kissable mouth, small, slightly sensual, and utterly disturbing. There were grey eyes, and an unimpeachable skin with two spots of vanishing colour. She was slender and athletic, without underdevelopment, and it was a delight to watch her move about a room, walk along a street, swing a golf club, or turn a cartwheel. Alas, qualification—her vivid, instant personality escaped that conscious theatrical quality that Amory had found in Isabel. Monsignor Darcy would have been quite up a tree whether to call her a personality or a personage. She was perhaps the delicious, inexpressible, once-in-a-century blend. "'On the night of her debut she is, for all her strange stray wisdom, quite like a happy little girl. Her mother's maid has just done her hair, but she has decided impatiently that she can do a better job herself. She is too nervous just now to stay in one place. To that we owe her presence in this littered room. She is going to speak. Isabel's alto tones have been like a violin.' but if you could hear rosalind you would say her voice was musical as a waterfall rosalind honestly there are only two costumes in the world that i really enjoy being in combing her hair at the dressing table one's a hoop skirt with pantaloons the other's a one-piece bathing suit i'm quite charming in both of them cecilia glad you're coming out rosalind yes aren't you Cecilia, cynically, You're glad so you can get married and live on Long Island with the fast younger married set. You want life to be a chain of flirtation with a man for every link. Rosalind, Want it to be one? You mean I've found it one? Cecilia, Ha! Rosalind, Cecilia, darling, you don't know what a trial it is to be like me. I've got to keep my face like steel in the street to keep men from winking at me. If I laugh hard from a front row in the theatre, the comedian plays to me for the rest of the evening. If I drop my voice, my eyes, my handkerchief at a dance, my partner calls me up on the phone every day for a week. Cecilia It must be an awful strain. Rosalind THE UNFORTUNATE PART IS THAT THE ONLY MEN WHO interest ME AT ALL ARE THE TOTALLY INELIGIBLE ONES. NOW IF I WERE POOR, I'D GO ON THE STAGE. CECILIA. YES, YOU MIGHT AS WELL GET PAID FOR THE AMOUNT OF ACTING YOU DO. ROSALIND. SOMETIMES WHEN I FELT PARTICULARLY RADIANT, I THOUGHT, WHY SHOULD THIS BE WASTED ON ONE MAN? CECILIA. OFTEN WHEN YOU'RE PARTICULARLY SULKY... I've wondered why it should all be wasted on just one family. Getting up. I think I'll go down and meet Mr. Amory Blaine. I like temperamental men. Rosalind. There aren't any. Men don't know how to be really angry or really happy. And the ones that do go to pieces. Cecilia. Well, I'm glad I don't have all your worries. I'm engaged.' Rosalind, with a scornful smile, "'Engaged? Why, you little lunatic! If Mother heard you talking like that, she'd send you off to boarding school, where you belong! Cecilia, "'You won't tell her, though, because I know things I could tell. And you're too selfish!' Rosalind, a little annoyed, "'Run along, little girl! Who are you engaged to, the ice-man, the man that keeps the candy store?' Cecilia, cheap wit good-bye darling i'll see you later rosalind oh be sure and do that you're such a help exit cecilia rosalind finished her hair and rises humming she goes up to the mirror and starts to dance in front of it on the soft carpet she watches not her feet but her eyes never casually but always intently even when she smiles the door suddenly opens and then slams behind amory very cool and handsome as usual he melts into instant confusion he oh i'm sorry i thought she smiling radiantly oh you're amory blaine aren't you he regarding her closely and you're rosalind she i'm going to call you amory oh come in it's all right Mother'll be right in, under her breath. Unfortunately. He, gazing around. This is sort of a new wrinkle for me. She. This is no man's land. He. This is where you, you... Pause. She. Yes, all those things. She crosses to the Bureau. See, here's my rouge. Eye-pencils. HE I DIDN'T KNOW YOU WERE THAT WAY. SHE WHAT DID YOU EXPECT? HE I THOUGHT YOU'D BE SORT OF... SORT OF... SEXLESS. YOU KNOW, SWIM AND PLAY GOLF. SHE OH, I DO, BUT NOT IN BUSINESS HOURS. HE BUSINESS? SHE SIX TO TWO, STRICTLY. HE I'D LIKE TO HAVE SOME STOCK IN THE CORPORATION. SHE. OH, IT'S NOT A CORPORATION, IT'S JUST ROSALIND UNLIMITED. FIFTY-ONE SHARES, NAME, GOOD WILL, AND EVERYTHING GOES, AT TWENTY-FIVE THOUSAND DOLLARS A YEAR. HE, DISAPPROVINGLY. SORT OF A CHILLY PROPOSITION. SHE. WELL, Emery, YOU DON'T MIND, DO YOU? WHEN I MEET A MAN THAT DOESN'T bore ME TO DEATH AFTER TWO WEEKS, PERHAPS IT'LL BE DIFFERENT. He, Odd, you have the same point of view on men that I have on women. She. I'm not really feminine, you know, in my mind. He. Interested. Go on. She. No, you. You go on. You've made me talk about myself. That's against the rules. He. Rules? She. My own rules, but you. "'Amory, I hear you're brilliant. "'The family expects so much of you.' "'He.' "'How encouraging.' "'She.' "'Alex said you'd taught him to think. "'Did you? "'I didn't believe anyone could.' "'He.' <laughs> "'No, I'm really quite dull. "'He evidently doesn't intend this to be taken seriously.' "'She.' "'Liar.' "'He.' "'I'm... I'm religious, I'm literary, I've—I've even written poems. She. There's Libra! Splendid! She declaims. The trees are green, the birds are singing in the trees, the girl sips her poison, the bird flies away, the girl dies. He, laughing. (laughs) No, not that kind. She, suddenly. I like you he don't she modest too he i'm afraid of you i'm always afraid of a girl and, until i've kissed her she emphatically my dear boy the war is over he so i'll always be afraid of you she rather sadly i suppose you will a slight hesitation on both their parts he after due consideration listen this is a frightful thing to ask she knowing what's coming after five minutes he but will you kiss me or are you afraid she i'm never afraid but your reasons are so poor he rosalind i really want to kiss you she so do i they kiss definitely and thoroughly he after a breathless second well is your curiosity satisfied she is yours he no it's only aroused he looks at she dreamily I've kissed dozens of men. I suppose I'll kiss dozens more. He, abstractedly, Yes, I suppose you could, like that. She, Most people like the way I kiss. He, remembering himself, Good Lord, yes! Kiss me once more, Rosalind. She, No, my curiosity is generally satisfied at one. He, discouraged, is that a rule she i make rules to fit the cases he you and i are somewhat alike except that i'm years older in experience she how old are you he almost 23 you she 19 just he i suppose you're the product of a fashionable school she no i'm fairly raw material i was expelled from spence i've forgotten why he what's your general trend she oh i'm bright quite selfish emotional when aroused fond of admiration he suddenly i don't want to fall in love with you she raising her eyebrows nobody asked you to he continuing coldly but i probably will i love your mouth she hush please don't fall in love with my mouth hair eyes shoulders slippers but not my mouth everybody falls in love with my mouth he it's quite beautiful she it's too small he no it isn't let's see He kisses her again with the same thoroughness. She, rather moved. "'Say something sweet.' He, frightened. "'Lord, help me!' She, drawing away. "'Well, don't, if it's so hard.' He. "'Shall we pretend, so soon?' She. "'We haven't the same standards of time as other people.' He. "'Already it's—' other people she let's pretend he no i can't it's sentiment she you're not sentimental he no i'm romantic a sentimental person thinks things will last a romantic person hopes against hope that they won't sentiment is emotional she and you're not with her eyes half closed you probably flatter yourself that that's a superior attitude he well Rosalind Rosalind don't argue kiss me again she quite chilly now no I have no desire to kiss you he openly taken aback you wanted to kiss me a minute ago she this is now he i'd better go she i suppose so he goes toward the door she oh he turns she laughing score home team 100 opponents zero he starts back she quickly rain no game he goes out she goes quietly to the chiffonier takes out a cigarette-case and hides it in the side-drawer of a desk. Her mother enters, notebook in hand. Mrs. Connage Good! I've been wanting to speak to you alone before we go downstairs. Rosalind Heavens! You frighten me! Mrs. Connage Rosalind, you've been a very expensive proposition. Rosalind resignedly Yes. Mrs. Connage And you know your father hasn't what he once had. Rosalind, making a wry face, Oh, please don't talk about money! Mrs. Connage, You can't do anything without it. This is our last year in this house, and unless things change, Cecilia won't have the advantages you've had. Rosalind, impatiently, Well, what is it? Mrs. Connage, "'So I ask you to please mind me and several things I've put down in my notebook. The first one is, don't disappear with young men. There may be a time when it's valuable, but at present I want you on the dance floor where I can find you. There are certain men I want to have you meet, and I don't like finding you in some corner of the conservatory exchanging silliness with anyone, or listening to it.' Rosalind sarcastically, YES, LISTENING TO IT IS BETTER. MRS. Connage, AND DON'T WASTE A LOT OF TIME WITH THE COLLEGE SET. LITTLE BOYS, NINETEEN AND TWENTY YEARS OLD. I DON'T MIND A PROM OR A FOOTBALL GAME, BUT STAYING AWAY FROM ADVANTAGEOUS PARTIES TO EAT IN LITTLE CAFES DOWNTOWN WITH TOM, DICK, AND HARRY. ROSALIND, OFFERING HER CODE, WHICH IS IN ITS WAY QUITE AS HIGH AS HER MOTHER'S. MOTHER, IT'S DONE. You can't run everything now the way you did in the early nineties. Mrs. Connage, paying no attention. There are several bachelor friends of your father's that I want you to meet tonight. Youngish men. Rosalind, nodding wisely. About forty-five. Mrs. Connage sharply. Why not? Rosalind. Oh, quite all right. They know life and are so adorably tired-looking shakes her head but they will dance mrs connage i haven't met mr blaine but i don't think you'll care for him he doesn't sound like a money-maker rosalind mother i never think about money mrs connage you never keep it long enough to think about it rosalind sighs yes i suppose some day i'll marry a ton of it out of sheer boredom "'Mrs. Connage, referring to Notebook. "'I had a wire from Hartford. "'Dawson Ryder is coming up. "'Now there's a young man I like, "'and he's floating in money. "'It seems to me that since you seem tired of Howard Gillespie, "'you might give Mr. Ryder some encouragement. "'This is the third time he's been up in a month.' "'Rosalind. "'How did you know I was tired of Howard Gillespie?' "'Mrs. Connage.' THE POOR BOY LOOKS SO MISERABLE EVERY TIME HE COMES. ROSALIND. THAT WAS ONE OF THOSE ROMANTIC PRE-BATTLED AFFAIRS. THEY'RE ALL WRONG. Mrs. Connage, her say, said, AT ANY RATE, MAKE US PROUD OF YOU TONIGHT. ROSALIND. DON'T YOU THINK I'M BEAUTIFUL? Mrs. Connage. YOU KNOW YOU ARE. From downstairs is heard the moan of a violin being tuned, the roll of a drum. Mrs. Connage turns quickly to her daughter. Mrs. Connage. Come! Rosalind. One minute! Her mother leaves. Rosalind goes to the glass, where she gazes at herself with great satisfaction. She kisses her hand and touches her mirrored mouth with it. Then she turns out the lights and leaves the room. Silence for a moment. A few chords from the piano, the discreet patter of faint drums, the rustle of new silk, all blend on the staircase outside and drift in through the partly opened door. Bundled figures pass in the lighted hall. The laughter heard below becomes doubled and multiplied. Then someone comes in, closes the door, and switches on the lights. It is Cecilia. She goes to the chiffonier, looks in the drawers, hesitates then to the desk whence she takes the cigarette-case and extracts one. She lights it, and then, puffing and blowing, walks toward the mirror. Cecilia, in tremendously sophisticated accents, Oh, yes, coming out is such a farce nowadays, you know. One really plays around so much before one is seventeen that it's positively anticlimax." "'Shaking hands with a visionary middle-aged nobleman. "'Yes, Your Grace, I believe I've heard my sister speak of you. "'Have a puff. "'They're very good. "'They're—they're Coronas. "'You don't smoke? "'What a pity. "'The King doesn't allow it, I suppose. "'Yes, I'll dance.' "'So she dances around the room to a tune from downstairs.' her arms outstretched to an imaginary partner the cigarette waving in her hand end of this part of chapter 1 Book Two, Chapter One, Part Two of This Side of Paradise This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book Two, Chapter One, Part Two. SEVERAL HOURS LATER. THE CORNER OF A DEN DOWNSTAIRS FILLED BY A VERY COMFORTABLE LEATHER LOUNGE. A SMALL LIGHT IS ON EACH SIDE ABOVE. AND IN THE MIDDLE OVER THE COUCH HANGS A PAINTING OF A VERY OLD, VERY DIGNIFIED GENTLEMAN, PERIOD 1860. OUTSIDE THE MUSIC IS HEARD IN A FOXTROT. ROSALIND IS SEATED ON THE LOUNGE, AND ON HER LEFT IS HOWARD Gillespie. A vapid youth of about twenty-four. He is obviously very unhappy, and she is quite bored. Gillespie, feebly. What do you mean I've changed? I feel the same toward you. Rosalind. But you don't look the same to me. Gillespie. Three weeks ago you used to say that you liked me, because I was so blasé, so indifferent. "'I still am.' "'Rosalind. "'But not about me. "'I used to like you because you had brown eyes and thin legs.' Gillespie, helplessly. "'They're still thin and brown. "'You're a vampire, that's all.' "'Rosalind. "'The only thing I know about vamping is what's on the piano score. "'What confuses men is that I'm perfectly natural. "'I used to think you were never jealous.' NOW YOU FOLLOW ME WITH YOUR EYES WHEREVER I GO. GILLISBY. I LOVE YOU. ROSALIND. COLDLY. I KNOW IT. GILLISBY. AND YOU HAVEN'T KISSED ME FOR TWO WEEKS. I HAD AN IDEA THAT AFTER A GIRL WAS KISSED SHE WAS... WAS ONE. ROSALIND. THOSE DAYS ARE OVER. I HAVE TO BE ONE ALL OVER AGAIN EVERY TIME YOU SEE ME. Gillespie are you serious rosalind about as usual there used to be two kinds of kisses first when girls were kissed and deserted second when they were engaged now there's a third kind where the man is kissed and deserted if mr jones of the nineties bragged he'd kissed a girl everyone knew he was through with her if mr jones of nineteen nineteen Bragg's the same everyone knows it's because he can't kiss her any more. Given a decent start, any girl can beat a man nowadays. Gillespie. Then why do you play with men? Rosalind, leaning forward confidentially. For that first moment, when he's interested, there is a moment, oh, just before the first kiss, a whispered word, something that makes it worth while and then rosalind then after that you make him talk about himself pretty soon he thinks of nothing but being alone with you he sulks he won't fight he doesn't want to play victory enter dawson ryder twenty-six handsome wealthy faithful to his own a bore perhaps but steady and sure of success ryder i believe this is my dance rosalind Rosalind. Well, Dawson, so you recognize me. Now I know I haven't got too much paint on. Mr. Ryder, this is Mr. Gillespie. They shake hands, and Gillespie leaves tremendously downcast. Ryder. Your party is certainly a success. Rosalind. Is it? I haven't seen it lately. I'm weary. Do you mind sitting out a minute? Ryder. Mind— i'm delighted you know i loathe this rushing idea see a girl yesterday to-day to-morrow rosalind dawson ryder what rosalind i wonder if you know you love me ryder startled what oh you know you're remarkable rosalind because you know i'm an awful proposition Anyone who marries me will have his hands full. I'm mean, mighty mean. RYDER Oh, I wouldn't say that. ROSALIND Oh, yes, I am, especially to the people nearest to me. She rises. Come, let's go. I've changed my mind, and I want to dance. Mother is probably having a fit. EXEUNT Enter Alec and Cecilia. CECILIA just my luck to get my own brother for an intermission Alec gloomily. I'll go if you want me to Cecilia Good heavens no with whom would I begin the next dance? Sighs, <sighs> there's no colour in a dance since the French officers went back Alec thoughtfully I don't want Amory to fall in love with Rosalind Cecilia. WHY, I HAD AN IDEA THAT WAS JUST WHAT YOU DID WANT. ALEC. I DID, BUT SINCE SEEING THESE GIRLS, I DON'T KNOW. I'M AWFULLY ATTACHED TO Amory. HE'S SENSITIVE, AND I DON'T WANT HIM TO BREAK HIS HEART OVER SOMEBODY WHO DOESN'T CARE ABOUT HIM. CECILIA. HE'S VERY GOOD-LOOKING. ALEC. STILL THOUGHTFULLY. SHE WON'T MARRY HIM, BUT A GIRL DOESN'T HAVE TO MARRY A MAN TO BREAK HIS HEART. Cecilia What does it? I wish I knew the secret. Alec Why, you cold-blooded little kitty! It's lucky for some that the Lord gave you a pug-nose. Enter Mrs. Connage. Mrs. Connage Where on earth is Rosalind? Alec brilliantly Of course you've come to the best people to find out. She'd naturally be with us. Mrs. Connage Her father has marshaled eight bachelor millionaires to meet her. Alec, you might form a squad and march through the halls. Mrs. Connage, I'm perfectly serious. For all I know, she may be at the Coconut Grove with some football player on the night of her debut. You look left, and I'll— Alec, flippantly, hadn't you better send the butler through the cellar? Mrs. Connage, perfectly serious— Oh, you don't think she'd be there? Cecilia. He's only joking, Mother. Alec. Mother had a picture of her tapping a keg of beer with some high hurdler. <laughs> Mrs. Connage. Let's look right away. They go out. Rosalind comes in with Gillespie Gillespie Rosalind, once more I ask you don't you care a blessed thing about me amory walks in briskly amory my dance rosalind mr gillisby this is mr blaine gillisby i've met mr blaine from lake geneva aren't you amory yes gillisby desperately i've been there it's in the the middle west isn't it Amory, spicily, approximately, but I always felt that I'd rather be provincial hot tamale than soup without seasoning. Gillespie, what? Amory, oh, no offence. Gillespie bows and leaves. Rosalind, he's too much people. Amory, I was in love with a people once. Rosalind, So? Amory. Oh, yes, her name was Isabel. Nothing at all to her except what I read into her. Rosalind. What happened? Amory. Finally I convinced her that she was smarter than I was. Then she threw me over. Said I was critical and impractical, you know. Rosalind. What do you mean, impractical? Amory. Oh, drive a car, but can't change a tire. Rosalind: What are you going to do? Amory: Can't say, run for president, right? Rosalind: Greenwich village? Amory: Good heavens no, I said right, not drink. Rosalind: I like businessmen, clever men are usually so homely. Amory: I feel as if I'd known you for ages. Rosalind: Oh, are you going to commence the Pyramid story? Amory No, I was going to make it French. I was Louis the Fourteenth, and you were one of my—my— my... Changing his tone. Suppose we fell in love. Rosalind I've suggested pretending. Amory If we did it, it would be very big. Rosalind Why? Amory because selfish people are in a way terribly capable of great loves rosalind turning her lips up pretend very deliberately they kiss amory i can't say sweet things but you are beautiful rosalind not that amory what then rosalind sadly oh nothing only i want sentiment real sentiment and i never find it amory i never find anything else in the world and i loathe it rosalind it's so hard to find a male to gratify one's artistic taste someone has opened a door and the music of a waltz surges into the room rosalind rises rosalind listen they're playing kiss me again he looks at her amory well rosalind well amory softly the battle lost i love you rosalind i love you now they kiss amory oh god what have i done rosalind nothing Oh, don't talk. Kiss me again. Amory I don't know why or how, but I love you from the moment I saw you. Rosalind Me too. I... I... Oh, tonight's tonight. Her brother strolls in, starts, and then in a loud voice says, Oh, excuse me, and goes. Rosalind her lips scarcely stirring don't let me go i don't care who knows what i do amory say it rosalind i love you now they part oh i am very youthful thank god and rather beautiful thank god and happy thank god thank god she pauses and then in an odd burst of prophecy adds "'Poor Amory!' He kisses her again. Kismet Within two weeks Amory and Rosalind were deeply and passionately in love. The critical qualities which had spoiled for each of them a dozen romances were dulled by the great wave of emotion that washed over them. "'It may be an insane love affair,' she told her anxious mother, "'but it's not inane.' The wave swept Amory into an advertising agency early in March, where he alternated between astonishing bursts of rather exceptional work, and wild dreams of becoming suddenly rich and touring Italy with Rosalind. They were together constantly, for lunch, for dinner, and nearly every evening, always in a sort of breathless hush, as if they feared that any minute the spell would break and drop them out of this paradise of rose and flame. But the spell became a trance, seemed to increase from day to day. They began to talk of marrying in July, in June. All life was transmitted into terms of their love. All experience, all desires, all ambitions were nullified. Their senses of humour crawled into corners to sleep. Their former love affairs seemed faintly laughable and scarcely regretted juvenilia. For the second time in his life— Amory had had a complete bouleversement, and was hurrying into line with his generation. A LITTLE INTERLUDE Amory wandered slowly up the avenue, and thought of the night as inevitably his. The pageantry and carnival of rich dusk and dim streets, it seemed that he had closed the book of fading harmonies at last and stepped into the sensuous, vibrant walks of life. "'Everywhere these countless lights, this promise of a night of streets and singing.' He moved in a half-dream through the crowd as if expecting to meet Rosalind hurrying towards him with eager feet from every corner. How the unforgettable faces of dusk would blend to her, the myriad footsteps, a thousand overtures, would blend to her footsteps, and there would be more drunkenness than wine in the softness of her eyes on his.' Even his dreams now were faint violins, drifting like summer sounds upon the summer air. The room was in darkness, except for the faint glow of Tom's cigarette where he lounged by the open window. As the door shut behind him, Amory stood a moment with his back against it. "'Hello, Benefuto Blaine! How went the advertising business today?" Amory sprawled on a crouch. I loathed it as usual. The momentary vision of the bustling agency was displaced quickly by another picture. My God, she's wonderful! Tom sighed. I can't tell you, repeated Amory, just how wonderful she is. I don't want you to know. I don't want ANYONE to know. Another sigh came from the window. Quite a resigned sigh she's life and hope and happiness my whole world now he felt the quiver of a tear on his eyelid Oh golly Tom bittersweet sit like we do she whispered he sat in the big chair and held out his arms so that she could nestle inside them I knew you'd come tonight she said softly like summer just when i needed you most darling darling his lips moved lazily over her face you taste so good he sighed how do you mean lover oh just sweet just sweet he held her closer "Amory," she whispered when you're ready for me I'll marry you." We won't have much at first. "'Don't!' she cried. "'It hurts when you reproach yourself for what you can't give me. I've got your precious self, and that's enough for me. Tell me.' "'You know, don't you? Oh, you know!' "'Yes, but I want to hear you say it.' "'I love you, Amory with all my heart always will you all my life oh amory what i want to belong to you i want your people to be my people i want to have your babies but i haven't any people don't laugh at me amory just kiss me i'll do what you want he said no i'll do what you want we're you not me oh you're so much apart so much all of me he closed his eyes i'm so happy that i'm frightened wouldn't it be awful if this was was the high point she looked at him dreamily beauty and love pass i know oh there's sadness too i suppose all great happiness is a little sad beauty means the scent of roses and then the death of roses beauty means the agony of sacrifice and the end of agony and amory we're beautiful i know i'm sure god loves us he loves you you're his most precious possession i'm not his I'm yours. Amory, I belong to you. For the first time I regret all the other kisses. Now I know how much a kiss can mean." Then they would smoke, and he would tell her about his day at the office, and where they might live. Sometimes, when he was particularly loquacious, she went to sleep in his arms, but he loved that Rosalind, all Rosalinds, as he had never in the world loved any one else intangibly fleeting, unrememberable hours. Aquatic Incident One day Amory and Howard Gillespie, meeting by accident downtown, took lunch together, and Amory heard a story that delighted him. Gillespie after several cocktails was in a talkative mood. He began by telling Amory that he was sure Rosalind was slightly eccentric. He had gone with her on a swimming party up in the Westchester County, and someone mentioned that Annette Kellerman had been there one day, on a visit, and had dived from the top of a rickety thirty-foot summer-house. Immediately Rosalind insisted that Howard should climb up with her, to see what it looked like. A minute later, as he sat and dangled his feet on the edge, a form shot by him. Rosalind, her arms spread in a beautiful swan-dive had sailed through the air into the clear water. Of course I had to go, after that. And I nearly killed myself. I thought it was pretty good to even try it. Nobody else in the party tried it. Well, afterward Rosalind had the nerve to ask me why I stooped over when I dove. It didn't make it any easier, she said. It just took all the courage out of it. I ask you, what can a man do with a girl like that? Unnecessary, I call it." Gillespie failed to understand why Amory was smiling delightedly all through lunch. He thought perhaps he was one of those hollow optimists. Five weeks later Again the library of the Conage House. Rosalind is alone, sitting on the lounge, staring very moodily and unhappily at nothing. She has changed perceptibly. She is a trifle thinner, for one thing. The light in her eyes is not so bright. She looks easily a year older. Her mother comes in, muffled in an opera cloak. She takes in Rosalind with a nervous glance. Mrs. Connage Who is coming to-night? Rosalind fails to hear her, at least takes no notice. Mrs. Connage "'Alec is coming up to take me to this berry play. Et tu, Brutus?' She perceives that she is talking to herself. "'Rosalind, I asked you, who is coming to-night?' Rosalind, starting. "'Oh! Oh! What! Oh! Amory!' Mrs. Connage, sarcastically. "'You have so many admirers lately that I couldn't imagine which one.' Rosalind doesn't answer. "'Dawson Ryder is more patient than I thought he'd be. "'You haven't given him an evening this week.' "'Rosalind,' with a very weary expression that is quite new to her face, "'Mother, please!' "'Mrs. Connage, "'Oh, I won't interfere. "'You've already wasted over two months on a theoretical genius "'who hasn't a penny to his name. "'But go ahead, waste your life on him.' I won't interfere. Rosalind, as if repeating a tiresome lesson, You know he has a little income, and you know he's earning $35 a week in advertising. Mrs. Connage And it wouldn't buy your clothes! She pauses, but Rosalind makes no reply. I have your best interests at heart when I tell you not to take a step. You'll spend your days regretting it's not as if your father could help you things have been hard for him lately and he's an old man you'd be dependent absolutely on a dreamer a nice well-born boy but a dreamer merely clever she implies that this quality in itself is rather vicious rosalind for heaven's sake mother a maid appears announces mr blaine who follows immediately amory's friends have been telling him for ten days that he looks like the wrath of god and he does as a matter of fact he has not been able to eat a mouthful in the last thirty six hours amory good evening mrs connage mrs connage not unkindly good evening amory Amory and Rosalind exchange glances, and Alec comes in. Alec's attitude throughout has been neutral. He believes in his heart that the marriage would make Amory mediocre and Rosalind miserable, but he feels a great sympathy for both of them. Alec. Hi, Amory. Amory. Hi, Alec. Tom said he'd meet you at the theatre. Alec. Yeah, just saw him. How's the advertising today? write some brilliant copy amory oh it's about the same i got a raise everyone looks at him rather eagerly of two dollars a week general collapse mrs connage come alec i hear the car a good night rather chilly in sections after mrs connage and alec go out there is a pause rosalind still stares moodily at the fireplace Amory goes to her and puts his arm around her. Amory. Darling girl! They kiss. Another pause, and then she seizes his hand, covers it with kisses, and holds it to her breast. Rosalind, sadly. I love your hands more than anything. I see them often when you're away from me. So tired. I know every line of them. Dear hands! their eyes meet for a second and then she begins to cry a tearless sobbing amory rosalind rosalind oh we're so darned pitiful amory rosalind rosalind oh i want to die amory rosalind another night of this and i'll go to pieces You've been this way four days now. You've got to be more encouraging, or I can't work or eat or sleep." He looks around helplessly, as if searching for new words to clothe an old, shop-worn phrase. "'We'll have to make a start. I like having to make a start together.' His forced hopefulness fades as he sees her unresponsive. "'What's the matter?' He gets up suddenly and starts to pace the floor. "'It's Dawson Ryder, that's what it is. He's been working on your nerves. You've been with him every afternoon for a week. People come and tell me they've seen you together, and I have to smile and nod and pretend it hasn't the slightest significance for me. And you won't tell me anything as it develops.' Rosalind "'Amory, if you don't sit down, I'll scream!' Amory, sitting down suddenly beside her. "'Oh, Lord!' rosalind taking his hand gently you know i love you don't you amory yes rosalind you know i'll always love you amory don't talk that way you frighten me it sounds as if we weren't going to have each other she cries a little and rising from the couch goes to the armchair I've felt all afternoon that things were worse. I nearly went wild down at the office. Couldn't write a line. Tell me everything." Rosalind. There's nothing to tell, I say. I'm just nervous. Amory. Rosalind, you're playing with the idea of marrying Dawson Ryder. Rosalind, after a pause. He's been asking me to all day. Amory. Well, he's got his nerve. Rosalind, after another pause. I like him. Amory. Don't say that. It hurts me. Rosalind. Don't be a silly idiot. You know you're the only man I've ever loved, ever will love. Amory, quickly. Rosalind, let's get married. Next week. Rosalind. We can't. Amory. Why not? Rosalind. Oh, we can't. I'll be your squaw in some horrible place. Amory. We'll have two hundred and seventy-five dollars a month, all told. Rosalind. Darling, I don't even do my own hair, usually. Amory. I'll do it for you. Rosalind, between a laugh and a sob thanks amory rosalind you can't be thinking of marrying someone else tell me you leave me in the dark i can help you fight it out if you'll only tell me rosalind it's just us we're pitiful that's all the very qualities i love you for are the ones that will always make you a failure amory grimly go on rosalind oh it is dawson rider he's so reliable i almost feel that he'd be a a background amory you don't love him rosalind i know but i respect him and he's a good man and a strong one amory grudgingly yes he's that rosalind "'Well, here's one little thing. There was a little poor boy we met in Rye, Tuesday afternoon, and, oh, Dawson took him on his lap and talked to him, and promised him an Indian suit, and next day he remembered and bought it. And, oh, it was so sweet! And I couldn't help thinking he'd be so nice to—to our children, take care of them, and I wouldn't have to worry.' Amory, in despair, Rosalind! 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 with a faint roguishness. Don't look so consciously suffering! Amory. What power we have of hurting each other! Rosalind, commencing to sob again. It's been so perfect, you and I! So like a dream that I'd longed for, and never thought I'd find! the first real unselfishness i've ever felt in my life and i can't see it fade out in a colorless atmosphere amory it won't it won't rosalind i'd rather keep it as a beautiful memory tucked away in my heart amory yes women can do that but not men I'd remember always, not the beauty of it while it lasted, but just the bitterness, the long bitterness. Rosalind. Don't! Amory. All the years, never to see you, never to kiss you, just a gate shut and barred. You don't dare be my wife. Rosalind. No, no, I'm taking the hardest course, the strongest course marrying you would be a failure and i never fail if you don't stop walking up and down i'll scream again he sinks despairingly onto the lounge amory come over here and kiss me rosalind no amory don't you want to kiss me rosalind tonight i want you to love me calmly and coolly, Amory. The beginning of the end, Rosalind, with a burst of insight. Amory, you're young. I'm young. People excuse us now for our poses and vanities, for treating people like Sancho and yet getting away with it. They excuse us now, but you've got a lot of knocks coming to you, Amory. And you're afraid to take them with me rosalind no not that there was a poem i read somewhere you'll say ella wheeler wilcox and laugh but listen for this is wisdom to love and live to take what fate or the gods may give to ask no question to make no prayer to kiss the lips and caress the hair speed passions ebb as we greet its flow to have and to hold and in time let go amory but we haven't had rosalind amory i'm yours you know it there have been times in the last month i'd have been completely yours if you'd said so but i can't marry you and ruin both our lives amory we've got to take our chance for happiness rosalind dawson says i'd learn to love him amory with his head sunk in his hands does not move the life seems suddenly gone out of him rosalind lover lover i can't do with you and i can't imagine life without you amory rosalind we're on each other's nerves it's just that we're both high-strung and this weak. His voice is curiously old. She crosses to him and, taking his face in her hands, kisses him. Rosalind I can't, Amory. I can't be shut away from the trees and flowers, cooped up in a little flat waiting for you. You'd hate me in a narrow atmosphere. I'd make you hate me. Again she is blinded by sudden, uncontrolled tears. Amory. Rosalind. Rosalind. Oh, darling, go. Don't make it harder. I can't stand it. Amory, his face drawn, his voice strained. Do you know what you're saying? Do you mean forever? There is a difference somehow in the quality of their suffering. Rosalind. Can't you see? Amory. I'm afraid I can't, if you love me. You're afraid of taking two years' knocks with me. Rosalind. I wouldn't be the Rosalind you love. Amory, a little hysterically. I can't give you up! I can't, that's all! I've got to have you! Rosalind, a hard note in her voice. You are being a baby now. Amory, wildly, I don't care. You're spoiling our lives. Rosalind, I'm doing the wise thing, the only thing. Amory, Are you going to marry Dawson Ryder? Rosalind, Oh, don't ask me. You know I'm old in some ways. In others, well, I'm just a little girl. I like sunshine and pretty things and cheerfulness, and I dread responsibility. I don't want to think about pots and kitchens and brooms. I want to worry whether my legs will get slick and brown when I swim in the summer. Amory And you love me. Rosalind That's just why it has to end. Drifting hurts too much. We can't have any more scenes like this. She draws his ring from her finger and hands it to him, their eyes blind again with tears. Amory, his lips against her wet cheek. Don't! Keep it, please! Oh, don't break my heart! She presses the ring softly into his hand. Rosalind, brokenly. You'd better go. Amory. Goodbye. Goodbye. She looks at him once more with infinite longing, infinite sadness. ROSALIND Don't ever forget me, Amory. Amory Good-bye. He goes to the door, fumbles for the knob, finds it. She sees him throw back his head, and he is gone. Gone! She half-starts from the lounge and then sinks forward on her face into the pillows. ROSALIND Oh, God! I want to die! After a moment she rises and with her eyes closed feels her way to the door. Then she turns and looks once more at the room. Here they had sat and dreamed. That tray she had so often filled with matches for him. That shade that they had discreetly lowered one long Sunday afternoon. Misty-eyed, she stands and remembers. She speaks aloud. Oh, Amory! Amory! what have i done to you and deep under the aching sadness that will pass in time rosalind feels that she has lost something she knows not what she knows not why end of chapter